What was your first professional directing job? First professional directing job was when I took a short film I had directed when I was 22, my first film, shot on film, and I had a choice to make uh, between take that film and try to raise money and try to write a script and be an indie filmmaker or to go into commercials and advertising. So I chose the latter and I went into advertising. Like some of my heroes, Ridley Scott, Tarsem, Tony Scott, David Fincher. Um, so I took that film into several ad agencies and was offered a job right away. And, um, and then they said, we want you to shoot something on spec for us because shooting your own film and shooting a commercial is completely different when it comes to parameters for time and budget and so forth. And I got offered a, a script for a black and white surf style, uh, 16 millimeter um, surf. Like it was sort of like in the vein of the Malloy brothers, Jack Johnson, you know, this sort of like surf awesome guitar commercial for this taco brand. And um, so I shot it on film, shot it on black and white reversal, uh, which they didn't want me to do. They wanted me to shoot on color. They wanted to do change the color in the DI. And I insisted on black and white reversal. And uh, we shot it and the client loved it. It was a look they didn't anticipate. Had kind of a, it had kind of a, a an endless summer style to it, but it was very, very, very high contrast. So it felt very portrait-esque with these beautiful people eating burritos. Oh, wow. That's and always so, fun to watch. And they really dug it. And uh, so I, I got known as the guy who was a little analog. You know, that was like right when red uh, camera was taking off. And I kept pushing analog the whole time. I kept wanting to shoot on film um, because we were going to be seeing everything in digital. Uh, I wanted to go the other way so that when you saw uh, my work or the work of that agency, that it would pop, you know, come out of people. So, yeah. You said you were 22? 22, yeah. So this was in the Washington area? Or yeah. The yeah, I shopped my reel, which was a five-minute uh, boxing prize fighter um, short film called In the Corner, which no one will ever get to see. Uh, I shopped it around Seattle and Portland um, and a couple of other small markets. I knew that I wanted to stay in the Pacific Northwest. I didn't want to go to LA yet. And um, so, yeah, I shopped it to, I think, three or four agencies, and two of them were really interested. And then I went with the one that had the biggest accounts because I wanted to work on big commercials from day one. Yeah, 22. How does a 22-year-old convince an ad agency executive to use film and, and do it sort of more his right. way? I, I did a lot of homework before my first meeting. So those pitch meetings, uh, which took some time to get, um, I called around and I figured out who the creative directors were. I looked at their work. Um, I, I looked at who was doing stuff that was very trendy and, and sort of... Um, just what you would expect from an ad agency. And then I looked at CD's work that, that was really provocative or old school, or they were going for the kernel of an idea that, that maybe the audience or the consumer wasn't expecting with some success and some failure. You know, you look at ad campaigns and you're like, that was a great idea, or that was great execution and a terrible idea. And um, so I was really looking for agencies that did really interesting stuff. and. 
Fortunately, the, the creative director that I worked with, um, or create, chief creative officer, because he was the honcho, he had a passion for film. And he had a passion for Errol Morris, and he had a passion for uh, Scorsese, and um, he liked these eccentric pictures that other people would never know. And I knew what they were. And um, so when I sat down with this particular individual, and I showed him my film, he said, oh, you shot on 16. I said, no, I shot on Super 16. And I started talking about film stocks. And he knew some of that, but he didn't know all of it. But he was turned on because he was like, this kid, which I was a kid, um, wants to be, um, he wants to go after things like a filmmaker, not like, um, not like a copywriter or whatnot. And um, so we ended up uh, talking about Films like The Last Waltz, right? Or um, uh, And the Summer came up, of course. Tokyo Olympiad, which is a really awesome Criterion documentary about um, the Tokyo Olympics where they, I think it's like 10 or 12 filmmakers, they hired different filmmakers and each filmmaker shot different events differently. So some shot video, some shot eight mil, some shot 35 millimeter, and then they cut it all together in a documentary. That, that actually was primary topic of our first interview. We talked about this very obscure documentary that only cinephiles really know about. And, um, and, uh, and then we ended up nerding out on film stock. And so he, from day one, he was very um, supportive of trying to get that across the line um, with all the clients. And some of them said no. Um, so then he was really supportive of if we weren't gonna shoot film and we were gonna go digital, that we studied it. You know, he gave me this bandwidth, like, time and some resources to say hey we're not shooting film what should we shoot on you know and uh it was um you know the advertising industry paid for me to go to film school do you remember how much you were paid for this first directing gig yeah i had a very interesting um role at that agency because they didn't hire me freelance to direct they hired me to direct a lot of their stuff so i kind of had a contract right away which is very unusual. Usually you're a freelance director and you pick up this and you pick up that. And uh, I think because of this creative relationship that I had right away with this um, creative executive that he really wanted that. He wanted like, oh, hey, if you're going to direct or DP what we're doing, I want you to do all of our stuff. So all of our stuff has a brand, right? Because one of the ways things become really inefficient in commercial production um, until you get to a certain level when you're paying for a name or you're paying for an established director that has a brand that brings gravitas to a project, but everything else is, has an inefficiency to the fact that, you know, you build the whole production team and then the next project, you change it all again. And the next project, you change it all again. Um, and that can be beneficial for multiple clients, of course, but this particular agency's size had some big accounts, but not a lot. And so they uh, they thought it was really beneficial to hire me and put me on salary. So and I think I made forty two thousand dollars a year. And then within about a year, I sat them down and asked for a massive raise. So, how long did you end up staying with this? Um, Just under three years. Three years. Yeah, yeah. It was very. Uh, uh, I sw I came right in um, at the time when they had uh, an NFL team account. Um, and I got to work on that account uh, at a high level. And that, that team went to the Super Bowl, and our work was up on jumbotrons and 
they were using our work to do big ad buys. And so it was kind of like, it was kind of like being on top of the wave before it rises, you know? So it was a timing thing, um, but, but getting in that door was about a, a collaborative passion for film and movies and talking, um, uh, talking at length. I mean, we would go on location in New York or Montreal and we'd be in the car for hours, this uh, creative director and I, or we'd be on flights and we would just start talking about movies. And so we had this, we were both always kind of in agreement secretly that every commercial could be a film. And um, that stuck with me, that sort of rebellion, you know, because a client wants you to photograph their chicken or their burrito or something. And we wanted to tell a story about why people even care about this brand. And um, that, that stayed with me through all of my advertising career because I always was pushing back on aesthetics, like what it should look like, or on the fact that it needs to have a story or people don't care. Uh, and sometimes when you're in a room full of marketing people, they really don't care about your point of view about that. So, um, so yeah, I stayed there for um, a few years and then I moved on. Is there a style to finesse that, especially because you might have been one of the youngest people in the room? I'm just assuming. I was for a while, yeah. Okay. Um, I was usually the youngest, which means I tried not to say much uh, unless I felt really, I, I really wanted to listen. I really wanted to learn. I didn't know the advertising world at all, you know, and I didn't presume to know how a client gives an agency a million dollars to shoot an ad campaign. Like, I'm like, I don't know how that happens. And how do they siphon off a half a million of that to do a TV spot campaign, right? Or whatever the budget is. So it was a lot of um, shutting up, paying attention. Um, and so the finesse or the um, negotiation between an agency and a client is each one of those relationships is very unique, right? Because you have some clients who will talk to the creative team at an agency and they'll say, we trust you, go for it, right? That's an optimal situation. And then you'll have a pessimistic situation, which is a client that's like, we need close-ups of the mop or the chicken or the sport cleat or whatever it is. And you'll say, well, who's, you know, who's holding the burrito? Where are they? And how did they get there? And why are they there? And that's the story of that ad, right? And there are some clients that are um, not interested. Not inter they're interested in thinking that the reason why people buy things is because they're robots. And they're not. People buy things because they decided to accept your invitation. So, and I think advertising is an invitation. You can make it an invitation for people. And a lot of people, um, I mean, advertising shifted a lot since I was 22. Um, and it's very, there's a lot of things overall in the market that are way more beautiful or the production value of things is better. Um, but the storytelling is the same. It's still very A to Z. On one side, you have a, a absolutely excellent storytelling that happens to be about a brand, right? And then on the other end, you have like, um, you know, a detergent ad that's just telling you how clean your socks are going to be. So, yeah, I don't know much about the nuance of actually convincing someone to 
want to shoot my idea. Like I, I actually don't know how to do it exactly. I think what I learned over time was you get to know the client really well and you work on their trust and they'll trust you more and more. And then if something's not successful, you'll figure that out and they'll say, hey, your big idea didn't work. And I've had really big advertising ideas that didn't work. And I've had really big advertising ideas that um, that no one believed in but me and some other people. And it got shot and it got done in one wards and whatever. And um, so I always paid really close attention to the trust level between the agency and the client and how to, you know, when the trust is right, you go, okay, cool, then we can do this. Did you think about if you hadn't done your research and gone for that interview, mm. where your career would be? No, never. Because that's just how I am, you know. Um, when I was 14, I thought I wanted to be a fashion photographer. So I shot a lot of photography and developed my own film and learned how to use a lot of different kinds of cameras and work in the darkroom. And there was a photographer in the town that I lived in and grew up in that was really well known, very, very highly known guy. And um, his name is Paul Boyer. And he did a book uh, called 100 Over 100 where he went around the world and met with 100 people who were over 100 and photographed them in these beautiful portraits and did a book and it's an incredible book and it had just come out you know, right about that time when I was about 13 or 14. And I did a lot of research on him and ended up knocking on the door of his studio. And after a few um, knocks, uh, I met with him and, you know, I just wanted to talk to him for like, you know, and he said, okay, you can talk to me for a half hour. And I remember it very, very well. My, I couldn't drive. So my mother took me to this guy's like huge photo studio on the corner of a city block. And it was massive. And um, she says, okay, I'll be out in a half hour. And I was talking, I talked to him for like three hours, you know? And um, so the research thing started then, which was like, if I really cared about something, I wanted to learn about it and also accept the humility of like, this is my, this is my knowledge line this is where it is. So the next person I'm gonna learn from has to be great, right? And um, so that three hour conversation turned into me working for him for three years. Yeah, and I went to Italy with him to do a book and um, he taught me everything uh, I ever could imagine about every format of photography. <clears throat> and uh, he was very patient and he was very like, um, uh, he had daughters, he didn't have a son. So we had a very, we had a very like, we weren't father and son at all, but we were, we really cared about each other. And he took me under his wing in a way that wasn't like a regular, like assistant. He was like, it, it reminds me of like a, the way a painter would have an apprentice in like Renaissance, you know, Florence, where they say, hey, you earned this spot. Now I'm gonna um, teach you everything I know, but I'm gonna hold you accountable to the knowledge. And he would, he, he, he um, for example, um, he wouldn't let me shoot uh, a single frame of medium format can, uh, film for like a year. Uh, he would let me load his Hasselblads. He taught me how to do it basically blindfolded like, and, but he said, you know, you have to earn every shot. 
have to earn every frame and every frame matters. And um, uh, so that taught me a lot. I felt, I felt this sense of reward that I had studied him. And then when I met him, I had enough information to sort of represent myself, you know, be like, I'm serious, man. I'm fucking serious about this. And I'm 14. And uh, he took a, sh- took a shot on me, you know, with, with me working with him and it uh, changed my life forever. Uh, but it also taught me that that research is necessary if you want to do anything else. And uh, so I don't think about if I wouldn't have studied the people I wanted to present my short film to because that was just the way I was and the way I am now. You know, I read about you guys <laughs> before I got here, right? It's all lies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. No, I don't really think about that. But anyway, it's a good question. It's a great question. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's a time machine question, right? What the, you know, what if? I'm just glad I'm not a lawyer. Did you, that was actually my next <laughs> question. So not were you planning oh, to go, yeah. go to law school, but you knew you loved the image, still image, moving image, whatever. Yeah. Did you, it seems like you kind of have always known what you've wanted to do since you were a young age. Um, I think that you mean to be a director, film director? Or something in terms of you want to be behind a camera. Yeah, creating some. Uh, I did. I, I I did. I was very resolute, like you know, uh, until I was in my sort of like mid-teens or whatever, you know. And I, I I was on a mock trial team, which is like a fake legal team, and you study a brief and you study a case and all this. And I was really passionate about the law. And when I went to university, I studied acting, and I focused on. Japanese acting and some Russian acting, uh, Stanislavski technique. But then I also studied international law. And I kind of had, for probably about, I don't know, five or five, five years, six years, I had sort of two mistresses. Do you know what I mean? I was like, I really love film and I love photography. But it hadn't yet really turned into directing, right? It was, a, it was being a photographer, right? And... I looked at the landscape of how you become a photographer and I looked at the landscape of, of what really turned me on and there was this combination that started to evolve which was photography and acting. Okay, great, that's, that's film, right? And then I started writing in my late teens, um, you know, uh, sketches, short films. And then when I was in acting school, it started to evolve that there's an aspect of the theater that I, after having done a lot of theater, and being super passionate about Shakespeare and um, all that. Um, I actually had an experience on stage once where I became very detached from being on stage. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And, um, and about three months later, I, I began planning that first short film, that boxing movie, because I said, this passion for the theater that's been there since I was 15, it, six years later, five, six years later, is starting to crumble. So is it crumbling because it's dying and it needs to die and sometimes passions need to die? Or is it transforming to something else? And it was definitely transforming into, oh, I wanna be able to control this actor or that actor or this part of the scene. And theater's alive, so it's not that. So film is that, motion is that, making movies is controlling every aspect you can and then building it and cutting it and building a rhythm and editorial where it's alive, 
right? But it's, it's like filmmaking is the greatest illusion ever. And it's the best of all art forms, in my opinion, because it's a convergence of all of them. So, um, so it was very odd because I shot a couple of shorts in high school that were basically like my way of talking out, talking my way out of a test. You know, the teacher's like, we're going to do a test on the 20s. And I said, I'll make a short film about a speakeasy during Prohibition. And she's like, I don't know how you're going to get into a bar, but okay. <laughs> and I did. And we shot it. And it was very like, again, no one will ever, ever see that. Um, but I, so it was interesting. It was like, it was, it was not Spielberg oriented or um, some other directors who like, you know, like J.J. Abrams, who like shot Super 8 film when he was like eight. And he's always going to be a director. It was a more, um, it was much more of a journey where I think it's like when you're climbing a mountain or, you, you know, or you're in a sailboat or something like that. And you say, I'm going to go there. I'm definitely going there. And as you get closer, you look beyond where you thought you were going to go and you sort of trust, um, your own judgment and the universe. And then you really take advantage of opportunity. You know, when someone presents an opportunity, you go, yeah, I want to do that. And uh, I would never have thought, I would never have thought at the end of university that I would have been a commercial director like six months later, like never. But then it happened and then it was like, yes, this is so, this is magical, this is it, you know? And, um, so I wouldn't presume to say that I always had this master plan because I didn't. And um, I trusted where things were taking me. And then when it clicked, though, oh, that was amazing. You know, when I shot that first, um, when I shot that first short film, I remember um, we were shooting a fight sequence overcranked um, on 16 mil. I had all these actors I had gone to acting school with who were working for sandwiches, right? And, you know, we had like one overhead, like um, Kino. And um, I remember shooting these first few reels of film and then we took them to the lab and then we got them back. And I, uh, um, I remember this uh, sense of um, watching a, uh, like uh, in the film, The Prestige, he talks about that there's three parts of a magic trick and the third part is called The Prestige. It's when you, they blow your mind, right? And I remember having that feeling of this is, this is it. This is all those things that have come together. Uh, this is acting. This is writing. This is photography. Um, and also from having traveled, uh, having had the opportunity to travel a lot when I was younger and and go to galleries and see paintings of beautiful work that were sandwiched into my memory. It was this um, catharsis, birth, you know, chrysalis, whatever you want to call it. It was just this moment of absolute connection and everything made sense. Um, and that began a very hard road to now. Your love for justice, your love for the law? I still love it. I still love it a lot. Uh, I read a lot about international law. Um, I wanted to, when I was studying, I wanted to, I was very interested in that 
there's this assumption when you grow up in America, if you have certain opportunities, which I did, and you grow up in a certain sort of like socioeconomic demographic and whatnot, where you go, oh, you know, every other nation in the world has our kind of law enforcement and our kind of democracy, and which is super naive and not true. And as all of that becomes very clear, uh, there's this huge canyon between uh, our legal system, which is broken and it's working the best it can, and a country that has no legal system, zero, and it's just free-for-all and it's pure crime, or we would define it as that with our legal system. And so I was always interested in right and wrong. I was interested in what people are capable of. I was interested in big cases like murder, capital murder. Um, I wasn't interested in why someone steals a car. I was interested in psychology of the law. And I was interested in the, the presumption of innocence, which isn't true. You know, we say you're presumed innocent until proven guilty. And that's not true. Um, especially it's not true if you're not rich. And um, so what turned me on the most was uh, international law, because that's where the most work needs to be done uh, as far as people being accountable for crimes. I studied a lot of war crimes. Uh, but I also realized something that um, in my like fixation on the legal process, I was very interested in juries. I was very interested in um, how an attorney communicates with people who don't know anything about a case which is storytelling. And I remember having a really interesting conversation with a judge once, a powerful guy in Washington State, and um, we were talking about my future. And uh, I said, I think I was a junior in college, and uh, I said, hey, you know, I think I'm gonna take LSATs and I'm gonna give this a go. And he talked me out of it. And he, yeah, he was like, he said, I don't think that you actually love the law and I don't think you actually want to be an attorney. And this is a guy who was mentor since I was like 16 or something in high school. So, you know, five years or whatever it was. And he said, no, I don't think you should do it. And I said, why not? He said, I think you like, I think you like telling the jury the story of the crime. I think you like standing up there and, um, you know, uh, being, um, the you know Tom Cruise and a few good men, right? Or Atticus, or um, or the uh, firm, or the firm, <laughs> uh, or McConaughey in a Time to Kill, or or you know whatnot. And um, those crime, or sorry, those those trial dramas that were f great films uh, with great performances, because he saw me in a courtroom uh, doing mock trial, and he said, "I think that you like performing." more than you really like sitting down and reading a book of jurisprudence and looking at um, looking at case law. I don't think you're passionate about that. And he said, if you're a really great attorney, you have to be passionate about that. There's a history side to the legal system that you have to be really um, interested in. And, I, and I, I told him the truth. I was like, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in convincing these, convincing these people that this person is guilty or not guilty or whatever. And, um, and he said, well, you're proving my point and you, you shouldn't do this then because that's not ethical because that's not a good enough reason to go through law school or to go through whatever the, um, 
you know, whatever the, you know, whether it's public practice or whether it's private practice, you know, you're either going to be working for a gigantic firm and toe on the line, or you're going to be um, learning about the politics of the inner workings of a, um, of a DA's office or something. And he's like, you know, when it's dark and the demons come, you have to be passionate about the law. And you're not. You're passionate about telling the story. And uh, so that sent my that sent my pursuit of justice into a tailspin because I felt like I felt like I hadn't been telling myself the truth about why I had been pursuing that. Um, and then I was in a couple of plays that dealt with the law, and it kind of solidified it. It was like, oh man, this guy's super right. I like telling this story. I don't, you know, I don't care about this actual trial. I care about the experience for the audience. And so, so yeah, so by the time I um, decided to make a short film, um, my flame for being an attorney had gone out. What about uh, doing a documentary mm -hmm. on a case? Um, I have, um, I don't have a strong affinity for documentaries. Um, I've watched a number of them. I've watched a number of documentaries. Most documentaries that I've seen have been recommended to me to see. I don't go out, I don't go to documentary film festivals. I don't, I don't search through, you know, documentary lists and look for docs. Um, there's something about that that's super true and real and beautiful and human that's not manipulated. I mean, some documentaries are manipulated, but or they have a voice. They're trying to have a voice um, that is trying to stay as true in the wind as possible. Um, but I far prefer the beauty of and the creation of something original and um, uh, telling a story that hasn't been told before. If you watch a documentary, you know the end, like mostly. Mostly you're like, oh, it's about this and that's what that's about and that's what happened, right? Like if a documentary was about Kennedy assassination, you're like, I wonder what that's about, right? As opposed to sitting down in the dark with a film maybe you've only seen a trailer for or maybe you've only seen a press junket thing for. Um, uh, and time traveling, you know, you sit in a dark room and everything goes dark. And you go somewhere else, you know. One of the one of the earliest films that I um, that stayed like in my heart and my soul until today, um, um, and will continue to, is the film *Last of the Mohicans*. And I saw that film with my dad. We went twice, and that's truly time travel. Like you go into that film, um, and uh, you know, I think I saw that in '93 or something. So I was young and right away michael mann puts on screen i i think it says 1777 or 1778 and it has this you know beautiful gorgeous score and then it starts in the blue mountains and you're like i am there um and i'm super passionate about telling a story that's not true and a documentary is generally true and um I am really passionate about creating an illusion, you know, of, of, um, of something from nothing. And uh, so, yeah, that's why I didn't make a documentary about the law. But there's some really awesome ones that I like a lot. 
but I have friends who are like super keen on docs and I kind of, I kind of rely on them. I'll be like, Hey man, what's super good. And then they tell me what to watch. Um, but I, I would prefer to watch something else that is going to take me into a world I've never been to before. How does an American director end up in New Zealand? I was the creative director for a tequila brand um, in my mid to late 20s. And uh, I had been working with the team that designed the bottle and designed the logo and the branding and the identity um, and had done beautiful work, just, uh, just extraordinary work. And this was a design uh, agency in New Zealand. I became very close with a guy named Dave Quinlan and um, we became buddies. He became like my Kiwi friend. We would Skype and, you know, we would talk in meetings between agencies, but then we would like see how each other's families are doing and so forth. And um, I had made, I left that agency uh, and his design firm still had the account. And I came to, to LA and I was working in LA and I was shooting commercials in LA. Um, I was, I was writing a lot here and, um, I wasn't feeling the town. The town's vibe was not my jam. And it was like, um, uh, I think it was kind of like, it was not anything harsh. You know, people have said really harsh things about LA or not digging it. But like, for me, it was sort of, I went to a restaurant or I went to a film or I went to a concert. And in my mind, I was going to go to this one kind of restaurant or this one kind of concert or this one kind of film. And then when I got to LA, the experience was different. It was, I'm not talking about restaurants, I'm talking about metaphors where it's like, I heard, like it was not the same vibe I thought it was gonna be. It just wasn't, it just wasn't clicking, it, you know. I met some great people here. I still have those friends, are still friends today. Um, but the town itself, the, the energy of the town, without it being woo, sounding woo woo, it's like, it just wasn't like filling my soul and I also came from, like I've talked about with photographer, advertising agency, et cetera. I had come from an environment where I had reached out to mentors. I had reached out to people way better at what I wanted to do than, than I was at the, the stage I was at. And I didn't find any of that in LA. I found a sense of, I found a sense of um, uh, unimportance. I found a sense of, I'm one of a million who wants to fulfill a dream and it was never, it's not a dream. People say that to me. Oh, you fulfilled your dream. And I'm like, it's just work. It's just building the next, you know, bigger project. It's not like I'm sitting around rubbing a lamp, right? And waiting for a dream to come true. So when I was in LA, I, I expressed that to my friends in New Zealand. And I said, man, this town is not my jam. <laughs> you know, it's not. And, and I was working with some really creative people, doing some great work. But you know, there's a, when you make, films or commercials like it's family it's really a tight group of people and i just wasn't finding my rhythm like they had found their rhythm right they had found the neighborhood they wanted to live in they had found um, the place they're going to send their kids to school they had found their roots um i didn't find that um in los angeles when i came here and lived here and worked here i was fortunate to work here i know a lot of people who come here and nothing happens so that was wonderful but my connection with New Zealand stayed true and robust. And so that firm um, invited me down to work on the tequila account and to just sort of hang out in New Zealand. And I, I, I shot, 
I shot a couple of projects that were right up until I was going to fly out. I remember leaving the set over in the mountains. I was on the set in the mountains at this waterfall and I left, got in my car and drove to LAX and flew to New Zealand. And, uh, uh, which is a very LA moment. You're like, I just got off set and I'm going to get on a plane. Such a big deal. Um, and got off the plane and fell in love with the landscape driving from Auckland airport into Auckland city. Um, went into the city. It felt, it felt a little bit parallel to the waterfront of Seattle, which was home. It felt, it was so clean and beautiful. Um, and, uh, I, I went in May, which is essentially their fall, you know, um, sort of their like October, November weather. Um, and I stayed there for three weeks. And by the end of three weeks, we went from all sort of hanging out as buddies, um, to we had a business plan, a business model, an agency we were going to run and a name and all of that. And I left and came back here and sort of put some of the stuff I was doing here on hold. Um, and then for about a year, I started going, doing, <laughs> I started commuting from New Zealand to us, to, from New Zealand to Los Angeles. So I would go down to New Zealand for like eight weeks, eight or 10 weeks. And then I would come back to Los Angeles. Uh, we were shooting work in LA. We were shooting work in Austin, um, a little bit in New York. Um, and we had clients all over the place and, um, that opportunity in New Zealand started to gain momentum with the fact that, um, the relationships that I couldn't really build very tightly in Los Angeles, just due to not having the vibe, um, I started to build in New Zealand, you know, like I built a really great relationship with the camera house there. I built a really great relationship with a series of producers. Um, some of the production companies there are far more accessible than they are in Los Angeles, you know, like to talk to a studio head here, you got to like kill six people and you still might not get a meeting. Um, I'm joking about that. Uh, but in New Zealand, you like send the guy an email or the gal an email and you say, I'm this person, this is my work, I'd like to meet. Uh, and they would be like, all right, cool, because it's a smaller community and they're not used to people only coming and asking for things. They're used to people coming and saying, oh, yeah, mate, let's go f go to the pub and get a beer. So I started to really understand the film industry. From, I met with people at Village Roadshow. I met with people at Weta. I, I started to really understand the film industry, not from a Hollywood perspective, but from that perspective, which is the same because they made the same product that was going into Hollywood and being sold, they had deals with studios, right? And uh, Universal's big down there. Um, and uh, so, so New Zealand turned into a big robust advertising factory of creative as well. So as the chief creative officer of that agency, I wrote and directed every commercial we did. So it was, it was again, this, um, it was a craftsman opportunity more than I didn't want to just leave LA. That wasn't the point. The point was I'm going to go and shoot a ton of ads. I'm going to work a lot and I'm going to develop my craft more. And also, um, uh, I wrote five feature scripts when I was there in about, 
uh, in just under three years, you know? So it was, a, it was an opportunity to just like get in the zone. So yeah, that's how an American ended up in New Zealand. And it was, it was extraordinary, it changed my life forever. Having been in advertising, having been around the marketing world, mm -hmm. working for this tequila company, sure. been in LA, traveled, mm -hmm. do you think a filmmaker should have their own marketing plan, like their own brand? Not just for their films, but for them. 100%. 100%. Um, filmmakers need to think about marketing. They need to think about the brand of their product. They need to think about who's going to buy their product, um, who's going to watch their movie. Now, there's this relationship that you have to build, and it doesn't come right away because if you've never marketed anything before, it's like two different parts of your brain, right? You have to look at it like, why would someone choose to watch my film just swiping through iTunes or, or even at a marquee in a cinema? Why are they going to watch your film? It's very hard to answer that question for, for yourself if you have no practice marketing anything because you're going to be very subjective about your work. It's art. It's precious. It's yours. There's a, there's a possession and a, a permission to it that, you know, people um, at different experience levels, they have different levels of control over the way they hold what they make. And it's very difficult to step outside that ownership of your work and look at it objectively and be like, does someone even want to watch this, right? And so I think if filmmakers expose themselves to marketing plans and marketing objectives, it's not about that they're going to become a marketing executive, right? And they're suddenly going to um, they're suddenly going to become jaded and they're not going to care about the passion of filmmaking. Um, and that's probably the worry. They're like, I don't want to study marketing because it'll take away all of the magic, right? But then you're also super naive about the fact that you're not preparing yourself for um, success because if you work super hard and you stay really incubated and you know nothing about who's going to participate with your brand or your film, you will probably only get to make one because it won't be successful and you won't have resources or if you have investors, they'll feel like nobody saw the film, it'll lose money. So it's kind of, uh, there needs to be a relationship where you become familiar with the dance between, I have to look objectively at the work because I am making it for an audience, which leads me to my next point, I guess, which is, Eventually, you have to acknowledge an audience. And I know people who don't. I know people who are artists, visual artists, true and true. I know people who are screenwriters who don't care about um, getting coverage or they don't care about letting somebody else read their material uh, who may be objective or who may be critical. Uh, and that's great. That's a hobby. That's a hobby. That's not a professional. A professional understands the industry. A professional understands that it's a marketplace. Someone wants what you made or they don't. And if you ha want to have a career, I suggest that if people are really unfamiliar with branding and marketing, they try to understand it at least. That doesn't mean they need to have a relationship. doesn't mean they need to go shoot ads. But if they don't understand it, then 
they are um, cheating themselves out of the possibility of doing more work. And um, so I think it's super critical. Um, I guess the other thing I'd say is that uh, one of the things that's happened uh, for me transitioning from advertising to uh, features was that relationship with an audience. You know, I had opportunities for lack of a better, I had opportunities for lack of a better phrase where I could get away with it. I could get away with pitching to a client a highly artistic vision for a commercial and they love the idea so much that whether it sold a lot more watches or uh, athletic jackets or uh, motorcycles, um, they love the idea so much that I wasn't accountable to an audience. Now that's a huge privilege. It was a really great opportunity. But I didn't really know that until I started to go into developing the marketing plan and the release plan for our feature. Because I was like, wait a minute, what's my relationship with this audience? Do I care about my audience or not? And do I even have one? Um, I don't presume that anyone looks me up or cares about me, uh, and maybe that'll change someday, but that's not why I do what I do. But I care about them. I was at a, I was at a, a premiere last week um, doing a Q&A, and the first thing I did before I said anything or answered any questions, the person was very feverish. They really wanted to ask a lot of questions, and it was, and it was cool. They were awesome. But before I did that, I thanked everybody. I said, uh, I said you, you don't have cinema without an audience. You can have a film without an audience because you made a film and it's just there. But if you try to show it in the theater and no one goes, it's not cinema because no one saw it. And so when I said that out loud, it was sort of like, a, it was like the finishing of an arc of an idea where I was like, wow, people paid money to see my film. Um, and that doesn't make me feel good from an egotistical point of view. I mean, it doesn't make me feel bad, but it makes me feel like the idea that I wanted to understand why they would want to see it felt complete. Um, and in that moment, very, um, very personally, in that moment, all I wanted to do was make my next film and finish it because I wanted more audience members to see the next piece of work. And um, so I think there's a relationship between marketing and branding and understanding that you have to have an audience for it to be um, a high level piece of work. And, uh, and I hope people um, can figure out their own relationship with making art and marketing their art. And um, generally speaking, it's a tough ask. So I would just say people should open their minds. And you did a short film about, is it an art thief? So what happened with that was uh, I wrote, um, my friend and I wrote a feature about a heist, an art heist that's real. And um, we wrote it and we shopped it to two people and I hadn't, I hadn't directed a feature yet. So it was, um, they said basically you can do two things with this script. You can sell it on spec and that was on the table. You know, it has a, um, it has a Ocean's Eleven tone to it 
Um, but it's a little bit darker than that. It's kind of like... Um, uh, American Animals? Sorry. No, it's, it's a little bit like... There's a grooviness to um, American Gangster uh, with Denzel Washington, Russell Crowe, um, which is a period film in the 70s, but um, about Frank Lucas, uh, who sold heroin in New York. Uh, but there's a grooviness to that movie where you're like, oh, there's like a sense of humor to it, but it's also serious about what they're talking about. And there's a grooviness to like Ocean's Eleven and there's a great sense of humor, but then it doesn't have that serious component, right? It never gets really serious ever. Um, and so the film we were working on had a tone of that. Um, but anyway, to make a long story long, um, <laughs> we wrote the script and they said, hey, you can, you can sell it on spec or you could do something with it. And I had time between commercials or between a music video and a commercial. And I said, hey, let's, let's just shoot some scenes from it. So it's sort of billed as a short film and it's not. It's, it's a short film has to have a beginning, middle, and a short film, whether it's five minutes or 11 minutes, has to have act one, act two, act three. It has to, right? And this doesn't. This has, this kind of like picks up sort of in the beginning of act two, and then it, it ends, and, it, and, and you meet the thief uh, under circumstances which are very, very odd, where he has to prove a painting is real or not, and his life is in the balance. And then um, he is recruited after doing that, to steal the real one because he proves that the one they're looking at is a fake. And uh, um, so we shot this kind of like, kind of like you take a script and you're like, hey, we're gonna shoot page seven through 12, right? So we did and um, uh, after that experience, um, I got another, uh, another gig came up for me and then after I shot that, I went to New Zealand. And so we kind of put that all on ice and also we repolished that script, the guy who we co-wrote it, and, um, and he did a big polish of the script and it's probably like a $20 million film. So it's on ice, cause it's like, hey man, that opportunity is not knocking at my door right now and I'm not gonna undershoot it. Like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bring the scope of the script down to like three or $4 million cause it needs to be what it is, right? So now you have to have that discipline of, did we spend all this time on this script and is it ever going to get made or was that just really exciting during that period of our lives? So it's been on the shelf for like six years. Yeah. That's the danger of when you put something on IMDb. They're like, oh my gosh, this must have been like an official, official, official thing. And you're like, <laughs> no, dude, I just, it was a great project and we had a good time doing it. And, and it's a very, very interesting story we're passionate about. So when people do ask us about it, which is infrequent, um, you guys totally did your uh, R&D here. Uh, when people do ask us about it, it's something where we're like, you know, you want to drop kind of like a Easter egg or a breadcrumb and be like, yeah, hey, look for that in five years or, or whenever we get $20 million to shoot it. So anyway, there are other priorities between now and then. Sure. So yeah. Just a few meetings away. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you used a lot of the people or some of the people, mm -hmm. uh, in that art thief heist right. movie yeah. to then co-write and then be an echo is that right which is your um two people so the lead actor in the art portrait of an art thief's name is lathrop walker and he's the leading actor in echo um but he and i have been friends for 16 years uh we went to acting school together he's an extremely talented actor uh we lived together when i lived in la so it's sort of that ben affleck matt damon thing uh we we co-wrote some stuff. We wrote stuff individually. 
Um, and uh, so what happened with Echo was he and I co-wrote the story, um, sort of a treatment that developed over, over some time. And I took the treatment and uh, it needed to um, have a script uh, development session that was really my voice as a writer-director. Um, but we both built that story and we've, we've written several treatments together of films that are coming up. Um, but my relationship right now with the way I need to work is I need to write the script because the way I'm going to write it is the way I'm going to shoot it, right? And what I mean by that is, to give you a couple of examples, like if you read the script to Prisoners or if you read the script to Silence of the Lambs or Seven or um, Blade Runner 2049, you're reading the work of a screenwriter's interpretation of that story and the visuals and the scope of that story. But the, no directors contributed to that script. So if you read that script, you're going to read it just like a script. Now, if you read anything that Christopher Nolan writes or Michael Mann or James Cameron, um, you're reading a script from a writer-director. And the tone and the style of the writing is going to be very different because those writer-directors are writing it because that's the way they're gonna see it and that's the way it's gonna be interpreted. And those documents, without being cold about it, those documents are very, very different. Uh, I have a friend who writes for Marvel and he has read everything I've ever written and um, he's like, you're gonna shoot this dude. You're totally gonna shoot this. And I'm like, yeah, of course I am. And he's like, yeah, because you write, he's like, you write it like there are no other ways for me to interpret the visual language of this film. And so my relationship with Lathrop is we have, we have a co-writing relationship in the story phase of things that's highly organized and highly developed. And we've tried to co-write scripts together. We've tried once or twice. And, and the, the, the way of working didn't work for me personally. It had nothing to do with his creative energy or his uh, genius as a storyteller. He's very brilliant, very layered storyteller. It had to do with the voice of the script. It had to do with the way I wanted everything in the dialogue to sound or the way I wanted to interpret the scene description of presenting to the reader the way I want the film to be. And um, so we did co-write the story to Echo. Um, and I've known for a long time that I wanted to cast him as a leading man in my first film. I trust him implicitly. It's the same, vice versa. We've worked together on short films, as you know. We've worked together on commercials. We've worked together on music videos. We worked together on a very, very intense action music video that was kind of like narc and traffic together. Um, and he was a very interesting character. Uh, he's a classically trained actor, so when we talk about character development, we're talking like two actors are talking to each other, right? It's it's not top down. Like sometimes I'll be on a set and you'll watch a director be like, oh, I think you should be nicer. Just be nicer. And 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 an actor's like, I don't know what the hell that means. You know? So he and I have this relationship that we have this incredible shorthand director to actor, and we're best friends. So we it's just this brotherhood thing. And uh um, when people see Echo, they see what Michael Lathrop's character goes through in the film. Uh, and that's a tall ask if that guy was a movie star. Uh, for, for 
for a movie star or an A-list actor to go through that with a first-time director would be a super tall ask. But that's not what I thought about when I cast him. When I, when I, when I wrote Michael in the script, I wrote it for him. I, he was going to do it. Um, so the other aspect of your question was other people I worked with um, on Art Thief, um, Helena Grace Donald. Interestingly enough, when um, I went to, uh, they have these, um, you know what they are, and um, you know these acting master classes, right? right. Mm-hmm. So there's these showcases where actors come from all over the world to Hollywood or LA, and they work with a um, acting teacher. And there are some that are great, and then there are some that are like gurus. Uh, without mentioning the ones I've gone to, because those are my opinions. I've gone to a few that are fantastic and I've gone to a few that were not a good use of time. And I went to one that was fantastic and I watched, uh, I went with a casting director who said, um, and this is years ago, this is before we did Art Thief, we were casting for something else. And she said, hey, I want you to take a look at some people. And I said, all right. And I watched probably 14 scenes and out of those, so it's 14 scenes times two actors, out of like 30 actors or whatever, 28, she just blew me away. And when she was like 20, like 19 or 20, from London, and um, uh, I said, you know, hey, let's, let's talk to her. And um, I was right about to, I, we had just pulled those pages from Art Thief. We're like, hey man, we're gonna give this a go. Uh, and there's a character who's a, um, who's the daughter of a powerful billionaire art collector and she collects black market art and she doesn't really care how it is uh, acquired. She's a character that when we wrote it, she was like in her mid thirties and she was, um, we were always imagining like Kate Blanchett. We were always imagining a powerhouse who could just with one word or look could just hook you. And, uh, I told Helena about the character. I said, you know, I'd like you to read with Lathrop. Lathrop plays the art thief. And I said, you know, I really need you to convey that level of gravitas and power. And she's threatening him for most of the film. And that's a very tall ask. And she just killed it. And I said, okay, great. So she was in it and she was fantastic. Her and Lathrop had a lot of great chemistry. And, uh, and then we worked on one other small project together. We tested for something for one of the studios. Um, and, and then she went off and did a couple movies. And I went to New Zealand. And then when I came back from New Zealand, um, we were casting for Echo. And I called her and I said, hey, I wrote this role and I thought of you for it. And you don't need to audition, but here's the scoop. You know? And I told her about it. And right away it was... Um, very wise decision, and uh, and again, their their chemistry in Echo is very very dense, and it's um, it's fragile. There's magnetism between them that can only come from really enjoying the scene work with someone else. You know, you have people who don't give you any juice if it's not their coverage, right? And they are actors who are absolutely present with each other. And so that comes across um, in Echo big time. But only those, um, only those two actors, yeah. When did you start writing the screenplay for Echo? Six months before we started shooting. 
So what what happened was we wrote the story to, like I said, I wrote several scripts when I was in New Zealand, all of which were uh, beyond what our investment group had put together. So they were kind of like films that were outside the scope of what I could execute. So I said, okay, great. These will just have to hold. So then we collaborated on a very interesting uh, um, script and we wrote that and, it, and then I took a, a big pass at that draft of that particular film. And I got to the end of it and I said, it's the same issue. It's too big for what we can shoot. So I put that on the shelf and I said, I really, really, really wanted to do that, but it's just not the right time, which takes a lot of discipline and you have to kind of like get over it pretty quick. So then we sat down and I said, hey, I have this idea. So I, I sent him a two-page idea. I was like, hey, I have this idea, bang, 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 bang. And he was like, oh, that's super interesting. And then he came back to me and said, well, what if it's set here and here and here? So we went through a couple of versions of that treatment where at one point the film was set in a hotel that was very time-oriented, um, sort of uh, like a ticking time bomb of a film. Uh, and then we expanded that and we got the treatment to a place where we both felt like we really understood the characters. And then I said, okay, I want to write this. And he's like, for sure, man. So I um, wrote it in, I think I did four drafts of the script. And, uh, and then we were in pre-production because we had a timeline on our capital. So, so, um, we didn't have a release date. We had a certain amount of capital put together and there was a time timeline on that capital. The other thing that was super critical in his life, and this is personal, but you, people can figure it out pretty quickly is his wife was pregnant with a, their first child. So we had this capital constraint and then we had um, a life constraint. And so we had this, um, you know, in the can deadline that we were working against. And uh, so, yeah, six months. And how did you get access to the capital? How are you? you could be, are you in New Zealand flying back and forth to L.A.? At, this oh, at that point? time? Yeah. No, no. At that time, I had moved back. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I had moved back full time. And uh, by then, when I moved back, I had a business model in my mind of what I wanted to do. And uh, I was super clear about, well, I had had the business model for years. And along with writing in New Zealand, I had done a lot of research. I had done a lot of research with uh, studios there. I'd done a lot of research with film distributors there. What works, what doesn't work, how does a film make money, how does it lose money? Um, and built a business plan there while we were running this ad agency. And um, so I came back from New Zealand and I was like, this is what we're doing. And um, so then I put together an investment group uh, out of Seattle. There's a couple of people in New York, but it's mostly in Seattle. So basically I sat down with people that I knew who trusted me a lot. And I said, this is what we're going to do. Um, and they said, awesome. The biggest challenge, the biggest hurdle I had wasn't trust and it wasn't execution. Or they didn't think I was going to make a product that didn't live up to standards of what they saw on my commercial reel. Um, they thought about time, you know, there's a lot of time variables with film, like when's the script going to be ready? What if you get rained out of a location? Uh, what if someone gets hurt, etc. Uh, from a producer's perspective, there's tons of variables, which in an investment world is called risk management. And uh, so we developed a very, very calculated risk management strategy. So all those folks 
felt like their capital was protected. And, uh, and then we met those, we met those requirements and beyond as far as budget goes and time goes. And I credit a lot of my, um, well, I credit all of my commercial uh, production experience with staying on target and um, being relentless with deadlines and so forth. And um, so, yeah, it was a very tight timeline. Um, and there were times when that was, that uh, there were times when that felt like it was um, reckless a couple times, meaning our goal was to achieve something in this amount of time. And, and every once in a while, there is this, there is this thundering hammer of reality, which was like, you didn't know this, no matter how many ads you've shot, no matter where you've shot, no matter what conditions you've shot under. And that's when, that's when you realize this is, this is 32 days. This is not two or three, this is a feature. Um, and, uh, and so that, that period of time was um, a reckoning. What were some of the recurring questions you were trying to ask yourself while writing Echo? I think the, the recurring question I wanted to ask myself was, why is this personal for the main character? Um, the genre that I wanted to work under, which is the spy thriller genre, is very well-tread, very, very worn. Um, there are not a lot of trails to be blazed there. So I wanted it to be a portrait. Uh, I started there. I started, okay, this needs to be very intimate um, about the main character and why he needs to know what he needs to know. And so, and it expanded from there thematically to me, which was he needs to know where he came from, not because he has amnesia or something like Jason Bourne, but he needs to know where he came from because he is going to be a father and his wife is pregnant in the film. And she's very far along, um, but they're balancing their life with the fact that he's a crab fisherman. So he's gone for months at a time. And one of the reasons why I wrote him as a crab fisherman was um, I know a lot of fishermen and they will tell you that there are a lot of, um, you know, interesting people on those boats. There are, there are nomads, there are outlaws, there are people that are fugitives. And there are captains of those boats who make a decision about whether or not they're going to pay someone in cash or in check and so forth. Generally speaking, the industry is very above board. So I don't want to come across as someone who's disparaging to the fishing industry, which is extraordinary. But there are, there are people you meet who you say, man, I really wonder about his past. And I was in a bar and I was writing, uh, I was expanding this character who was a former assassin. And I was talking to my friend who's a former fisherman. And we were at a fishing bar, so to speak, and I started to look around and I started to see him in these faces. I started to see like he's these this guy's running from something and that guy's running from something. And I wonder if that guy's done time, like hard time, right? And um, so I went back and I looked at some of the research methods that Michael Mann used for his first film, Thief, um, and some of the research he did for Miami Vice and for... LA Crime Story and for Heat, um, which is my favorite film of all time. Uh, and he really talked to people who are criminals. And he talked to people who are cops and he talked to people who are dealers and so forth. So I was like, all right, I'm really gonna, the questions I'm gonna ask myself are, why does he matter? Why would I believe this? Why would he go from being a professional 
high level killer who's paid to do this and works for a, a clandestine organization to working on a fishing boat. So I kept asking myself, you know, how can we keep this grounded? You know, how can we keep this story believable? Um, what ended up happening was in the script was um, the film became a love story. And I think some audience members have really responded well to that. You know, I think they really think the film is beautiful. I think some audience members expected John Wick 4. You know, they expected uh, um, a smash action picture uh, with stunt sequences. And it's not that. And uh, in the marketing, we tried to make it more beautiful. And in the um, way we promised to deliver the film to the audience, we tried to talk about its love story and the complications of that. And so the questions I kept asking myself when I was writing it was, um, if this man's gonna be a father, then he has to know his beginning too. And, um, and if someone um, found him, right, if he wants to live in obscurity, um, and if he wants to be a ghost um, and have a quiet life, if someone found him who knew his truth, what would he do? What would he do to protect that? And, um, and that's where everything started. Because the treatment Lathrop and I had was the story of the film. But that's not the motivation for a character. That's like, this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens and then it ends like this, right? And it was very interesting because when I went to go write the script, the ending changed. Um, when I went to go write it, the relationship between who his father was changed. Uh, and the organization went from being sort of a global question mark empire or organization like Terrell Corporation and Blade Runner or Wallace Corporation and Blade Runner 2049. We were like, wow, this is this ubiquitous like evil apple, right? And it changed completely to like this very private family owned company that's protecting its interests. Um, so everything became more grounded and I kept asking myself, how can I make this more of a portrait of, of one man's life instead of making it about like corporate espionage, which it does have in it, so. Why did you need to tell this story? Wow. It's like asking me why I have to breathe. <laughs> um, I knew from doing years of ads, I knew from writing both in Seattle and Los Angeles and New Zealand, that all of the energies of those pursuits were pointing me towards um, making a feature and crossing over, so to speak, like crossing the line from ads to, you know, doing from doing sprints to a marathon. And um, everything anybody tells you about shooting a film, uh, about its rigor and its sheer impossibility is true um, from my experience it's true and I remember the drive of we started this now we have to finish it uh, and the feeling that we could you know we had all the right people to make a complicated very very layered story come to life um, and then um, Internally, I had to push myself as hard as I could ever. Um, like it's like doing 200 commercials in a month, right? And um, 
and keeping a balance and a discipline for the work and my visual aesthetic. And uh, the cinematographer calls me, we are very close. And, he's, and he, says, he says, you are the guardian of the image. And what that means is, it's a very co high compliment, but more importantly than it being a compliment, what he means is I'm looking at everything for every shot, for everything. And I storyboard everything. I call every lens on every shot. Um, and so I think I had to kind of have this um, um, baptism by fire, um, any of those awesome phrases um but it but it was also climbing a mountain i've used that metaphor a lot to the point of i'm sure if some people watch this who know me they'll be like oh he's talking about mountains again um <laughs> but there are times i've read a lot of books uh i've read a lot of uh true story biographies about different climbers and there are times they talk about moving in a group getting to base camp moving to this other camp moving to this other um elevation and then they talk about like summiting or getting somewhere where they climb in the dark or they climb alone. And that's why I had to do it. I had to, I had to finish it and I had to get to the top. And um, there's still no sense of satisfaction or pride or any of that. It's just, it's like that quiet feeling of you did it, but it doesn't feel good. Like it doesn't feel like joyful, you know? feels like uh, it feels like you're more obsessed than ever to do it again so six months mm -hmm. to finish the script mm -hmm. for echo so you started with I know you said the ending changed at some mm -hmm. point yeah are you outlining what are you doing to begin this script um, I started with the first uh, image of what I wanted the audience to see which also changed uh, and I started with the pacing and, um, that's one thing that's very important that people know and the marketing team could have done a better job with this and they, they focused on other things. The, the pacing of it is, reminds you of like a European crime film. It's not an American, like I said, action picture. So I started with that, which is like, what's the tone of this when people are talking with each other? Are they saying what they mean or are they lying? And most of the scenes, they're saying what they think they can say, but there's a lot of other meaning. So for example, I knew that a two-page dialogue scene was gonna clock to like three and a half minutes on film because I needed to give actors room to work. And so I took the treatment, uh, which was, it was, I would say it was thorough in some places and not thorough in other places. And I'll give you an example of that. The treatment that we, do that we did and that we do has no dialogue in it and that's because the style of the dialogue i write is very specific and most of the time what it is is what's not said and that takes tremendous acting talent to nail and some audience members love that sense of like i'm watching their look and it's not telling me the thing but then it's going to an hour later and other audience members don't like that they want to be like you know they want it to be very on the nose. Uh, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to deliver the thing they want. I'm always gonna deliver the other thing. So I remember starting to build, um, uh, there, there are, uh, there's a timeline structure to the film. There's, a, there's, a, um, there's him and his life, and then there's what he's remembering about his um, past. And there are mirrors in the whole film 
So I remember building the mirrors in the script first and then being like, okay, this scene into this, into this, and he's remembering this how, and this is how we're showing his memory, and this is how we reveal that. Um, and I also was building a layered script in that the audience, it's an invitation for the audience to do work. It's not, it's not a very simple film to follow, and that's by design. I mean, Kubrick uh, and Nolan, uh, these, are, these are screenwriters. I'm not talking about their directing, which is masterful. I'm talking about their screenwriting. They're demanding. They say, I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna tell you a story, but you gotta be in it. You gotta be into this journey. Um, one of the things we were joking around about at the premiere was no one can go to the bathroom. If you go to the bathroom, don't come back because you're gonna miss something, right? Obviously, if you're in a cinema, you can't control stopping a film. So when it's on VOD, people can stop it or on Blu-ray. Um, so yeah, so, so um, I, I started with structuring everything and structuring the way things were gonna be revealed. And then I went into um, writing some scenes dialogue very meticulously. Some of those scenes, they just, uh, you know, you're like a channel. You're like, I know exactly what they say and I know exactly why they say it. And then other scenes, um, I'm always, I'm always, I always err on the side of no dialogue. I always err on the side of, I don't think people need to talk to say anything. So um, the script was very short at first. The first pass was like 78 pages. And then the final script was like 94. And the movie's two hours. So that means I'm a visual director that it shows a lot of information without people talking. And um, so yeah, th that's, that's how I began my process, by structure and then dialogue and then um, polishing the dialogue and then polishing the way I wanted the script to be read. Um, Quentin Tarantino says something great. I'm gonna paraphrase it because I don't know the exact quote, but he says, a script should be enjoyable for the reader, you know, whether it's made into a film or not, they should read it and enjoy reading it. And that's important for me. I'm very, I'm very um, turned on by even scene description, not being overly written, but being specific and uh, being character driven even. And um, uh, yeah, so those are the things I start with. And you knew you had this finance sort of ticking clock. Uh -huh. So where is Lathrop putting in his, is he really just doing more of the backstory on his character? Where, how is right. he getting involved? Um, we had uh, getting involved in the script. Uh, he didn't until there was a final script. Oh, so basically, okay. I took when I said I'm going to take it and I'm going to write it, I'm going to write it. And that's why it says written by me, right? And it's not an ego trip. It's like it's, it's written and directed by me because that's the way it's going to be, right? However, um, once there was a solid draft, right, which is like draft number dose, you know, um, uh, I, he read it and we sat down and we talked about it. You know, I said, hey, do you have any questions? You know, let's talk about it, you know? And he, and he was just starting to get into developing his character pretty thoroughly. So he's not coming at it from a writing perspective. He's coming at it from an acting perspective. And then what I told him I wanted to do was, hey, I said, hey, as I audition a person for this role or this role or this role, he may or may not be in the audition, right? 
he will he'll definitely not be in the audition he'll be in the callback maybe or he'll be in like the screen test chemistry read right and i said hey just so you know i'm watching these carefully and i'm revising as i go because i'm watching an actress's interpretation of a line and she's doing her art in that callback and you can get ideas from that she's not she's not improving she's not ad-libbing but she might take a pause that's not there or she might go through the scene and you might be like, oh man, I got to cut a third of this. I don't need a third of this. That's never usually my problem. Usually what it is, is something's missing. Some, maybe an extra line here of clarification. Um, and uh, um, he, had, he had, I would say he had like a handful of notes um, that were helpful because he's like, what about this? Or what about that? Or, or he'd say, I remember in one uh, screen chemistry read, he, he did two or three lines in a row and he switched them up every time. And he didn't switch them up because he doesn't know his lines because he's perfect in that capacity. He switched them up because he's like, let me try this. And I was like, yeah, man. And they were better. And so you go, okay, cool. That's great. Um, and then uh, the other thing that happened with the script uh, was um, after it was in the can, I knew when the film was shot, I was like, I know I need to restructure this in the cut. So my structuring of events in the um, script were the pacing wasn't right for what we got. And um, that's a reality of the relationship between what you think is going to work on the page and what you get on the day and what you get in your assembly. And your assembly is the truth. And um, uh, there's no, you know, you can read something on a page a hundred times and be like, this is going to work. Totally. It's totally going to work. Totally. And then you shoot it and you go, something was weird about today or something's weird about the movie you're putting together in your mind as you, as you shoot. I'm building the movie right in my head. And I know, I know it's going to come before and after something. I know the pacing of a moment and you're on set that day and you're like, man, something's not working and I don't know what it is yet. And then you put an assembly together and you go, I know exactly what the problem is. And you make two choices there. You restructure the cut with the material you have. Um, and we had a lot of great material. So 80% of the story restructuring could happen in the cut. And then you figure out what's missing because of time or because you didn't know you wanted to add those shots to the story. And, um, and I knew, we knew when we started day one that we were going to do pickups and reshoots. We knew that before we even started. Not like a studio that might do two months or what have you. I don't know, you know, or reshoot a whole, like World War Z, they shot like the last third of the movie again. But I knew that we were going to do a few days. And uh, as the assembly came together, that, that two or three days turned into six days. And it really allowed me to, uh, and it was, it was, uh, it was mostly um, pickups. It was not reshoots. We only did, the stuff we reshot was like insert stuff that I wanted something tighter of or, um, or a flashback moment I wanted something more significant of. So those are the reshoots. But everything else was shots that I knew I wanted during production that I was like, I'm going to get those later on. And um, so, yeah. What makes a great story? I think what makes a great story for me, I have two different responses to this question because I 
love film. I love movies. And I love a lot of different kinds of movies. If you look at what my collection is, or if you ask me for like a top 10 list, it's quite curated around my sensibilities and what I want to rewatch and what I want to study um, for future craft. Yeah. Um, but if you looked at those, you'd still see a lot of different kinds of stories. And so, first of all, I'd say that something about what the character must accomplish turns you on. Like you can see yourself in him or her. What they have to do is very, very, very interesting to you. And generally speaking, the kind of stories I like, the stakes are incredibly high. You know, we're talking about life and death. We're talking about um, someone figuring out a big piece of information about their life. Um, if you look at the scripts that we have in development, and if you look at my next couple of projects, you see that all of these from a stakes perspective, zero to 10 are a nine, right, at least. And that's because there's a contrast between your life, your life every day, right, that ticks away and however you spend your day. And then when you go and watch a piece of entertainment. And I think that um, the films that last for me are ones where the stakes are very, very high and where the protagonist doesn't know something very important. And that doesn't need, mean it needs to have an O. Henry ending or an M. Night Shyamalan twist or what have you. But there's this devotion to learning about their journey. And uh, so a great story, I think, has those components. I'm a bit of a romantic. And um, so I look at the fact that the protagonist is involved in some kind of love story or love conflict or is also dealing with, you know, they're kind of dealing with a macro conflict and they're dealing with micro conflicts because that's super real. And um, where a story loses me is if there are no micro conflicts. If it's just, I gotta go to the end of this place and kill all these people and that's it. Then it, it, it loses me, you know? I'm very entertained by John Wick. I have a tremendous amount of respect for those filmmakers, a tremendous amount of respect for all the training they do and their execution. The truth of it for me um, as a, a writer director is, I enjoy all of the um, ways they execute that concept of a movie, but I walk out of that film and I stop thinking about it. You know, I stop, I get in my car and I drive away and I, oh yeah, this is Pearl Jam. And I suddenly, that's it. I think the most interesting stories um, that I'm trying to write and shoot and make into work, and the most interesting stories that are in the collection of films I was mentioning are stories that have layers that don't, serve you maybe everything you need the first viewing. And so in addition to, uh, you know, high, high stakes in their macro objective, in addition to the protagonist dealing with the truth of a real relationship in the story, I think the third thing for me is that um, there has to be a sense of intellectual structure to the story. It has to make me think about the world they're in or make me think about the inner workings of that protagonist or make me think about or question my own relationship 
because of the amount of truth in that story. You know, sometimes you you are in a marriage or a relationship and you watch a marriage or relationship on screen and there's this profound truth in the script and in the acting and the directing and it makes you reflect on yourself. And those are the three things I really look for in a great story, definitely. There's an article I read, I have it saved um, in a folder that I go to sometimes when I need to uh, come out of the darkness, like out of editorial or out of like a writing um, period. And I, I go back to it when I need to sort of shake uh, the reality tree, you know, where you say, hey, what I'm doing is really important or what I'm doing is myopically obsessive in this particular scene that I'm writing or this particular moment we're cutting in editorial. And um, the article is an interview with David Fincher and the title is, you better be fucking serious because that's probably one of the big turn-ons for me is I work with people who are very serious about this work. And um, so I've had a very interesting relationship having not been on any panels. Uh, I don't know if it's because people don't like me, but I think it might also be because there's like a um, there's like a devotion to the technical practicality of execution. That's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about doing the thing. I don't want to talk about the thing, you know. And um, so maybe someday people will be interested in what I have to say. We'll see. When you pull up that article. Yeah. What does it do for you? I'm sure it varies from time to time. Like, how does it make me feel? Mm -hmm. um, it's like a it's like a mentor I don't have. You know, it's like a person where you say, "Hey, man, am I on the right track here? You know, am I like blinded? Am I missing out on life because I'm taking this work so seriously?" And it's a reminder from a craftsman who I have the highest regard for um, that. I should just keep going and that sometimes it's really lonely and sometimes um, it's very isolating um, and then sometimes there are people who have no connection to the industry and you engage with them whether they're your friends or your family and they don't understand why you care so much about what you're doing um, and then two years later they see your film and they Maybe they understand a little, but they still don't. So the article reminds me that I'm on the, I'm on the war path and just keep going. And being a little bit removed from the entertainment industry, being mm -hmm. in Washington State, yeah. I know there's a lot of artists up there. Yeah. There's music or fine art, whatever. Yeah. I live there most of the time, but I'm here all the time. But you're so, here all the time. Yeah. Okay. So, but, so we're sort of like dual residence sort of. Uh, it's probably like at this stage, it's probably like 75, 25. Okay. 80, 20, something like that, you know, so. So then you go to another, you're, you're, you're at least being exposed to both areas and you're sure. seeing a different mindset. Yeah. And so you're not probably hearing about, yeah, so we're working on this screenplay. It's the local market that you're frequenting right. Right. or yeah, I had this call back or whatever. Right. So does that help you? Does that help you stay more in quote the real world or mm. do you, not feel as motivated because you're not hearing about the industry all around you at all times? That's a great question. Um, for my personality, which is driven 
by myself. Like I don't need someone to kick my ass every day. Um, I think that having the dissonance, having the distance uh, also away from Hollywood is um, a real positive thing for the way I work. Um, I think that um, there's a way to get distracted in the labyrinth of the way the industry um, wants to give people value um, and the way they want to create um, energy and hope, um, which when I was living here full time, I found the energy and hope that was being created was a very uh, double-edged sword. I felt like the energy and hope that was being created for, for me when I lived here was optimism. It was fueling my tank. It made me want to meet great actors and great producers. It made me want to try to move my career forward. Um, the flip side of the coin is you're exposed to the fact that every door is locked to you whether you're a director or an actor or a producer, and that there are only a certain number of ways to get a key. Um, and so going to New Zealand offered me a reprieve from that search. I didn't have to think about like, how was I gonna get a key to talk to someone at Village Roadshow, or how was I gonna get a key to go down and talk to the people at Weta? Um, you just go. I mean, you call and you talk to them and decide if they wanna meet you. Um, etc. And I really benefit from um, creating my work elsewhere and not being part of the um, machine with its highs and lows, with the way that it decides it's going to tell me that my work's valuable. Um, however, I think the industry is tremendously interesting. I, I think the entertainment industry is the, one of the most unique business models in the whole world. And there's a discipline about understanding it and respecting it that I think it's very easy to, it's very easy to get angry about not being able to get a key to the door and you can't get in and then being really pissed off about that and then saying, you know, fuck Hollywood and having that attitude. And I don't have that attitude at all. I really, I, I respect it. When I drive down Highland and I see uh, the Dolby Theaters advertising, I'm like, I know why that's there. And uh, I know what it's doing to uh, add value and build the profile of that studio's release. I get all that, right? Um, but so far, I um, have had the opportunity to work with people here in sort of a satellite capacity where I come to town, I work with them, or I come to town and we talk about what we're gonna do, and then I leave and I go home. Um, and that's been the best process for me. Um, and it's been super rewarding. It's also allowed me to look at the machine of Hollywood with a different focal length, you know, and, uh, I've actually learned to have a much better sense of humor about it, you know? And I think when I lived here, I didn't. When I lived here, I was, um, I was so focused on making uh, my way towards one of those doors that I didn't step back and try to just look at it all and think about how it all works. 
Um, it's an incredible watch. It's an incredible mechanism with so many variables. Um, and um, there are a lot of very, very smart people here. And there are a lot of people here who are full of a lot of darkness. And um, it will always be interesting. Whenever I'm flying in, whenever I'm coming into town and I get off of Kuwenga by a Hollywood bull, I'm, whenever I drive into Hollywood, I'm always like, oh, this is, yeah, yeah, start looking behind the veil. Do you mind me asking why you left LA? I know you were flying to New Zealand with sure. this doing this advertising marketing, and then yeah. at what point did you leave LA for good? Or, or not for good, right? You're uh, open to coming back? Yeah, I think, I think it, it was never like I'm never going back there again. I think my relationship with, I mean, essentially my relationship with how much time I had to spend here changed. And it's never, um, it's never gone back to being full-time. Um, so, my opportunities in New Zealand, my opportunities for shooting a lot around the world regarding that, New Zealand, Australia, London, etc. They were far more interesting than me being here, hitting the pavement and maybe not getting a key to that door. It was like about building my craft and having time to write in a place that is one of the most beautiful countries in the whole world. And it was um, a refueling of the soul. Um, and then when I came back, I knew that I wanted to shoot a film right away and I wasn't going to shoot it here for infrastructure reasons, for cost reasons, for relationship reasons. I had more relationships in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but there are a lot of people on the um, talent side and the um, management side and the legal side and the distribution side, of course, that I work with here. So I come back regularly um, and a goal of mine outside of the immediate path um, is to work with a studio, you know, definitely. I would like to have the right group of producers at the studio. I would like to have the right amount of support. Um, and I'm very interested in that part of the experience where I can bring what I do in my process and my drive and my thoroughness to a studio project because the way they operate, uh, their protocols, um, their timelines are so fascinating. And I, you know, I finished the film in Los Angeles at eFilm. So I was working side by side with other directors who were on studio movies and we were all in the same kayak, you know, my studio was a non, or my film was a non-studio picture. Theirs were. So for example, when we were doing our DI, it was the cinematographer and I alone in a room. Next door, they were doing a very large budget picture and there was 20 people in the room. So that's the big difference is their protocols and their operations involve more support. They also involve more people whose opinions matter to that product. And I think working in the parameters of that would be very, very interesting when the time's right. And uh, I also kind of look at it like, if anyone's interested in, in my work and in our work that we're doing, they're going to want to have that trust in my filmmaking style and in my execution to be able to trust me with um, a real significant budget. So um, the goal, you know, the end all be all goal is not necessarily to work at or for a studio, 
but I'm truly interested in wanting to do that as part of the journey because um, their parameters for success and the way they support you is very different than when you're an independent. Did you shop around the script for Echo to production companies? No. And so that was never a plan. You had this business no. model yep. that you developed for a few years. Yep. And you knew certain people that would maybe say yes to it. Maybe say yes to it how? In terms of being an investor. You, you, there were yeah. a group of people uh, in different states. Our investment group is not a one-off thing. You know, our investment group is a slate of movies. And um, so the way I structured the model was like a startup, like a tech startup where you say, we're gonna make this product, we're gonna to go to market here, here are our revenue opportunities. And none of the investors that I have in our, our team uh, have ever invested in film before. And they don't have some strong opinion coming out of a Sundance market or a, uh, a con market. They've invested in technology companies and they've invested in um, equity firms and et cetera. And, uh, so the model turned them on because it was a company that builds its own asset and owns the asset and sells the asset globally. And it was just coincidental that the asset is a film. So that's part of the pitch is I don't really talk about making movies. They're all passionate about it. They're all interested in it. They loved Echo. Every one of the investors responded very well to the final film, which is super critical. Um, but no one was ever, no one read the script. No one asked to read it. And if they had asked it, I asked, I wouldn't have given it to them. Because that diverts the path of what we're doing. You know, the path is so singular. And there, uh, Morgan Freeman once said, don't accept criticism from someone whose feedback you wouldn't ask for. And so it's like, I wouldn't ask, you know, John Doe, investor, for feedback on a script because... You know, what would be the point of that? And that's no disrespect, super, super smart, smart, brilliant people in this team. Um, so you keep it as efficient as you can. Uh, and then you pay really close attention to how the process went, pay really close attention to um, every aspect of selling the film. And, um, and then we stay on the path, so yeah. You had a lawyer draft up all these documents and agreements and for the company for uh, for also for these investors yeah mm -hmm. yeah so i have an entertainment attorney uh, in los angeles and i have a securities attorney in seattle so the securities attorney knows nothing about films what they know about is building um uh, an investor's package for whether you're doing a startup or a seed round or a series a and um you just have to know what you're doing when you talk to people about investing in a film. Um, probably one of the most painful things I've experienced has been, you know, I've been to Sundance, I've been to TIFF, I've been to um, a couple of other film festivals that are sort of big. SIF? And uh, yeah, yeah, I had a couple of shorts in SIF when I was younger. Um, but SIF isn't, isn't a marketplace, right? And uh, nobody buys a movie because it went to SIF. They buy a movie because it goes to one of the selling festivals. But, um, but I remember having an experience where I was watching a film and I was near a producer and their primary investor. And the film was not good and um, wasn't executed well. And you could tell from their conversation that they didn't have a marketing plan. They had no sales plan. They had no release plan. 
they were at Sundance on um, a lot of luck. Maybe they knew some people. Um, Sundance gives great films opportunities and they try certain films out and that's awesome. That's what they do. Um, but I remember that experience vividly that this investor had put a lot of cash into a film that didn't meet their standard of any film and there's no way they're getting any of that back. And so, and that was, that was in 2007 or 2008 or something. And um, I, I remember that like seared in my mind that if I do this, you know, independently, that I have to come to the table with a plan that brings confidence and um, takes this stuff real fucking seriously, a la David Fincher. So, yeah. Are your parents entrepreneurs? Did you watch them build companies or? My parents are super, super hardworking. Uh, I watched their work ethic. I watched um, their, uh, they're both in education. Oh. So my dad was the superintendent okay. of public school districts uh, with a PhD. My mom has a master's in child psychology and um, uh, taught um, special ed, preschool, kindergarten, first grade. Um, these are wonderful, wonderful people who make the world a better place. And um, they're very supportive of this. I think there's a reality of it's out of their wheelhouse. You know, it's outside their wheelhouse of wanting to start an equity company. It's outside their wheelhouse of um, wanting to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on an illusion of entertainment that you'll sell to people. I think that there's something really practical uh, and beautiful about every day you go into a classroom and you lift a mind up or you take care of someone that needs that. And, um, but they always supported my madness. And, um, but there's not, a, there's not a connective, there's not a parallel between their lives and their careers and anything I'm doing. Uh, sometimes I think that's exciting for them uh other times i think it's curious other times i think that it's um there's like a sense of um there's a sense of they and they're very deep beautiful philosophical people and when we were young as kids um they said to us even when we were very young they said you know do something that feeds your soul right they didn't say go to law school yeah, they didn't say that. And um, so as this has been evolving, they've seen uh, um, they've seen a path that has had swaths of distance between success and trying things out and travel. And I've always been on the move. And so I think it's interesting for them to watch this come to life. And uh, and they both reacted very, very well to Echo. And I think that they were kind of there's a sense of not knowing like, is this real? Is what he's doing really real? You know, they've seen my commercial work and stuff, so they know that's real. But, you know, an endeavor that takes years in the making, um, they, there was a sense of like waiting uh, of, is this going to be any good? And so I think there was, um, without them knowing through and through everything about the industry, I think they were very excited that it, it was finished at the level it was finished at and that it's, the beginning, you know, they know I'm working on another film already. And so they're excited to, I remember my mom just saying like, you know, after she saw the film, 
She had a lot of questions about the film. She wanted to see it again right away, which is the perfect response. Enjoying it and wanting to see it again. That's the best reaction to Echo people can have. But she also had a lot of questions about what I was doing next. She's like, this film is very complicated and very interesting and very beautiful. So what, what are you going to do next? What could you possibly want to do next? You know, and that was a wonderful reaction, you know, um, and um, I'm super fortunate to I've got a great family and they have supported this um, all through my decisions to do this kind of work without understanding it. Um, from an insider's perspective, you know, they're looking at it from the outside and they're still supporting it, which is um, really, um, it's a privilege to have that kind of support. Yeah. So with your co-collaborator on Echo, Lathrop Walker, mm -hmm. is it, did he train for the assassin sort of scenes? Like what was oh, yeah. the process? Um, oh yeah. Um, so we did two types of training for Lathrop to become Michael. He's a very uh, fit and very skilled actor, um, and he's very physically oriented actor. He's done tons of physical training as far as embodying a character and developing them physically. So I knew that he was going to make him specific, um, which is a tall order in this particular script. Um, but two things that he's not is he's not an assassin, and he is also not someone who can hurt someone else with their bare hands. So we divided up his training into uh, weapons training and into stunt work. And the way the weapons training worked was we sent him to ITTS, which is in Simi Valley, uh, which is an interna international tactical training group. Uh, they train special operatives, they train um, SWAT, they train HRT, they train actors. Um, and uh, I did a lot of research around who would teach him as quickly as possible, but who would be very serious and very accountable for his learning. Now he's super serious as an actor and he's very committed to it. However, if we have a short period of time, you need to have a teacher or a coach who's gonna hammer you so that you become good quickly. And they did that. You know, He did several sessions there, going from learning how to handle a handgun all the way up to learning how to handle an assault rifle. And he went from a guy who, um, you know, you just would never see him with a gun at home. He would never have a gun. Uh, he went from that to being absolutely lethal with every weapon he was touching. Um, there are videos, we're training videos we have on YouTube that we show him doing the gun training, uh, both handguns and um, long rifles. And then the second group of uh, stunt work we did, uh, I hired a guy named Adam Noble, who is a fight coordinator. He does stunts for film, television, theater. He's really well-rounded journeyman, but he's also expert at physical movement for actors. Uh, he's trained um, intensely with the Suzuki method. He's trained intensely with um, stunt choreography associations and fight coordinators. And he's very, very good at teaching an actor, along with being a great stuntman himself. So what we did with Adam, Adam is based in Houston. So what we did was I wrote the fight in the movie the way I wanted to see it. And I sent him the pages and he read it. And then we talked about the beats of, of the fight sequences, right? There's three or four of those in the film. And so what Adam would do is he would take a group of students at the University of Houston 
uh, in one of his movement classes. And how great is that for a young actor to be like, oh, hey, I'm going to use you as a, you know, a hitman or as a heavy in a sequence so we can frame and sketch the fight. And so Adam would send me videos of that um, and I would describe my shots or I'd send him some storyboards. So he knew I said, I only want coverage of the fight from these perspectives because that's how the audience will see the fight. And so he would send me these, these sketches and they were, it was two things that were great about them. One, they were um, very clear about the movement, like the beats, you know, this happens and this happens, this happens, you know, nothing highly developed, meaning nothing moving at full speed really, because I didn't need to see that. And the second thing about them was his students were great. If I had notes, I'd be like, hey man, try this and try that. And he would adapt it right away and they were up for anything. But then we, a couple days before we ended up shooting those sequences. So Lathrop had learned the fight from videos. Lathrop trained all day, every day for a week with a group of professional stuntmen with, under Adam's guidance. And after a few days, they brought me in and I, they showed me the fight. And they had that, that main fight sequence is very quick. And it happens on a dock in a marina in a fisherman's terminal. So there's a lot of spatial constraints. It's very dangerous. Um, it's going to be at night. It's going to be wet, etc. And um, so Adam had put together a great fight. I wanted it to be more brutal. I wanted uh, it to better represent how the character re react to being surrounded. And most importantly, what's most critical about that fight in the film is, is really from his wife's perspective. It's the first moment, it's in the trailer, it's the first moment his wife watches him and what he can do. She doesn't know he can do this. He goes, he goes on a fishing boat to get his paycheck. He sees some stuff on the fishing boat, which is, which is scary and thrilling, meaning someone is gonna come and kill him. And he comes off the fishing boat and as she looks at him and he looks at her, he's surrounded by a group of masked men who are very well trained. And they're all professional stuntmen. And a couple of them were MMA fighters. Like these are really good fighters. And um, it was extraordinary to see it go from video sketches with students of Adams into this dynamic uh, fight. I shot the whole thing with a technocrane. So it has a sense of fluidity to it. And, and it's really a privilege to work with uh, Adam and his team but it's also a privilege to work with Lathrop because he takes every movement very, very seriously. Uh, he takes every part of the process very seriously. You see him like in the training videos on YouTube, you see him like, you know, pat guys on the back and help them up. And he's a really great person. Uh, and um, that's what you want in an actor who has to be violent towards another person is you want them to actually have the heart of someone who doesn't want to do this. Uh, and then when they do have to do it, it's much more authentic. Um, and uh, he brought that fight to life. And uh, the way it's shot is, I'm very proud of the way it's shot because of how much it uh, brings the audience into his wife's perspective of, I had no idea he was capable of this. And uh, that moment affects sort of a ripple, just that pebble in the water. That moment is, it ripples the rest of the film regarding what, his, what he's capable of. How much time did you have for pre-production? So six months writing the script. Right. Um, well, I was writing and location scouting at the same time. 
And that's a, a producer mindset, which is don't write what you can't shoot. Um, and so I was, for example, I was like, I want this sequence to happen on a fishing boat. So I went down to um, the fisherman's terminal in Ballard in Seattle. And I started walking the docks and looking for a boat. Like, what's the boat that I want for this movie? Um, and then I started looking at the dock and I was like, maybe the fight happens here. Yeah, the fight happens here. Boom. And then that's in the script. And then um, other things, there's a, there's a sequence with a private jet. And I was like, okay, how are we going to pull that off? And so pre-production became quite integrated in the scripts, uh, the scripts write, script writing out of necessity and out of, I don't know, I guess learning that as a commercial director. You're like, okay, I got this script. What can we do? How can we make it? How can we build that reality right now? And um, so pre-production began in earnest. I would say pre-production began in earnest around the middle of January because that's when we did a camera test. And you start testing optics and you start looking at what lenses are friendly for the actor. You start looking at what lenses um, you're going to be framing your language with, right? There's a vocabulary you're going to create. Um, so that was the middle of January. And then we started shooting on April 1st. What did you shoot on? We shot on an Ari Alexa. And um, it's a great camera. Love it. Love it. And were the lenses part of the package did you get other lenses from somewhere else uh we well we have a great relationship with kerner camera in seattle and i've worked with them on commercials before i moved to los angeles so we had a great rapport um so as a producer when i was um, going to be shooting up there i knew we were going to rent from them and um so we sat down with them and we told them what our budget was which was more than they thought it was going to be because they're used to supporting independent film. They're used to people coming in and say, first of all, used to people coming in and asking for it for free, which is ridiculous. <laughs> and then they're used to people negotiating rates or asking for a certain weekly rate, which is on the verge of insulting. So when we came in, we were super serious. And we said, this is our budget and this is what we're gonna do and this is how long we're gonna do it for. So they were on board right away. Uh, and then I did my test and um, I tested um, Kawa's. Uh, I knew I was gonna shoot anamorphic because the film demands anamorphic. Um, and so I tested Kawa's, which are um, older lenses. Uh, they're very um, mixed bag as far as the quality goes of one set to another. So for example, you might have a set of Kawa anamorphics where the 75 in the set is your hero and the optics of a couple of the other, like the 40 or the 100, or for example, they won't perform as well, whether it's for the first AC or whether it's for aberrations or uh, whether the flare is not working for you if that's what you're into. Um, and I tested those primarily because I was fascinated by um, how violent some of the moments are in the film. And if I wanted to incorporate optics that would lift that up and sort of add, supercharge it. So however, that was kind of an outlier because I knew that I was gonna shoot Cook Anamorphics as my primary set um, since I started writing this movie, so yeah. And then how are you lighting it? 
Well, we have uh, a great relationship with Pacific Grip and Lighting in Seattle. They have um, a Grip and Electric house in Portland. They have a Grip and Electric house in Seattle. And so Pacific Grip and Lighting, or we call them PGL, um, they're run by, it's run by a guy named Ray Hammond, and he is um, someone I've known for my entire career. So that first boxing movie that I shot on 16 uh, with those actors that all worked for sandwiches, um, the Kino that we used, I think we could only afford to rent three lights, and we rented them from him. And so he and I have known each other my whole career. And when I came back and said, I'm ready to do a film, and I'm going to produce as well, and this is what everything looks like. He gave us a, a, a deal that's in the realm of generosity that's very hard to express because he believes in me and he believes in what we're doing. And um, we're very gracious and we um, appreciate everything that he does. I think kind of like Kerner, maybe kind of like other vendors have experienced you know, sometimes filmmakers aren't full of gratitude. Sometimes they're artists to the point of ingratitude or they just forget to acknowledge people. Um, we're not like that. And so Ray was extraordinary in giving our production the tools that I had gotten used to using in commercial work. So you get used to using certain kinds of lights. You get used to using 18Ks and you get used to using sky panels, etc., where you're using some of the best instruments that are made. And um, so we had an incredible grip and electric package, the whole movie. Um, and he didn't know my cinematographer, but I you know, talked about him and he knows, Ray knows how particular and specific I am. So he recommended a gaffer for us that was local um, out of Seattle, who's done tons of movies and is a very awesome guy who takes no shit from anyone. And so he said, I think you two are gonna get along, <laughs> but if you don't, then don't work with them because it won't work. And he and I met for a coffee and like in five minutes, he was like, oh, you're not fucking around. And I was like, no. And uh, his name is Kevin Cook, he was our gaffer. And Kevin brought on a key grip named Mark Buing. And those two were, those two created an opportunity. Create uh, those two created an opportunity for Duncan and I to hold the bar as high as possible, right? So Duncan Cole is my cinematographer. He and I are brothers. <laughs> he and I have the. We work in the spirit of Spielberg and Kaminsky. We work in the spirit of Nolan and Wally Pfister when that was his DP or Deacons and the Cohen brothers. He is. Uh, the cinematographer that I've been looking for for my career. I've worked with a number of cinematographers and he and I just get each other. And the reason why we get each other is we're both photographers first. We're both looking at pictures, both creating pictures. The second reason is we don't reference other films when we're doing our process creatively. Like when I bring my visual reference materials to him. And I say, this is what I want the sequence to look like and the color palette's gonna shift over this arc and all that. They're photographs or they're paintings. They're not stills from movies. Very rarely, I will say that. I won't say never, I'll say it rarely. Because we're not trying to emulate another movie. We're trying to tell this story. So he and I understand lighting together 
very, very specifically. And he knows that I'm a compositional and a aesthetically driven director visually. So we don't ever talk about composition ever. Cause I'm like, this is what it's going to look like. And he goes right on man. <laughs> and, and it's the same thing. I've been on sets before where directors don't call the lens. They don't even know the focal length. They just say, I wanted to do this and that. And then the DP calls a 40 or a 50 mil or whatever. And that's the opposite. I call everything. And um, there were a handful of times, maybe two, two or three, where he said, hey, can we look at it on this? And I'm like, yeah, sure, man, we can look at it on that, but we're not gonna shoot it on that. And he's like, all right, cool. And it became a joke uh, because sometimes he'd want to look at it on a 50 and I'm like, we're shooting it on a 40. And he's like, yeah, let's just look at it though. And I'm like, all right, cool. And we'd look at it and he's like, what do you think? And I'm like, well, we just wasted five minutes because we're gonna shoot it on this. And it's not like a dictatorial thing. It's not like tyranny. It's like, I know exactly what I want every shot to look like and why. And so, so in our relationship, we're beyond that. We're beyond that. He is an incredible lighting cinematographer. So when we look at how we want the lighting language of the film to be, um, he communicates that directly with Kevin and Mark, the gaffer and the key, uh, in accomplishing that. And so from my work with Duncan in the past, before we did features together, we had that rapport where I'm like, it looks like this and here's why, and we come around here and it's dark and super silhouetted there, and you know why, and he's like, oh, okay. And it's that, it's like that. And then he goes and, and we and we have this very, very, very meticulous process, right? And then he goes this way and works with the gaffer and the key. And I go this way and work with the actors and we're both super efficient. Um, and he knows that he called me once. He said, you are the guardian of the image. And he didn't mean you're a control freak. He meant, you know exactly what you want, so I don't worry about that, right? He wants it to look like the way we want it to look, so he's worried about how it's gonna be lit to work that way. And from a technical perspective, he and I have a very, very dynamic vocabulary together about all the tools, um, not just optics or camera tools, but lighting instruments and things like that, and lighting quality and, um, and color, we talk a lot about color. Um, and that's because, that's because my goal as a director is I'm gonna bake the look into the negative. I'm not going to shoot it flat and then go into the DI with a color grade and make the color grade make the framework, right? So there's a latitude, uh, We've both talked about how if we were working on a studio movie, more than likely we would have to shoot our films flatter, right? Because the studio would want to be able to have more control in the color grade, in the DI. And we don't abide by that at all. Uh, and a good example of that is that we, for some sequences, we use split diopters. So diopters, especially on anamorphic frames, diopters can be, uh, they can be spherical, they can be diagonal, they can be pieces of glass. What the diopter does, it changes the magnification of the image so that it appears blurry. Now you can accomplish that in the DI. You can make a power window, you can add a blur or a Gaussian blur. You can make it look milky, right? Like a flashback or like something romantic. You can do that in post. We didn't. We put it on the map box and shot it that way. 
that's a commitment to the image. You go, that's what we're doing. And we're going to bake it in. Um, and if we didn't know each other as well as we do, um, with that mutual trust, we would make more limited decisions. We would make less committed decisions. Um, but uh, everybody on that team, on this first feature, Kevin, Mark, their teams on the grip and on the gaff side um, and the camera side, uh, we all became a family. They're all coming back for the next film. And uh, it was interesting for some of them who had done, I won't say who it was, but it was interesting for some of them who had worked on a lot of independent films. And working with us was different. And um, we were very fortunate to have their talent because they had probably worked on some projects they weren't really stoked about. You know, they had worked on some projects that were just jobs. And then they um, came on board Echo and we built this creative team that was like everybody, in like two days, everybody was like, we all care about how this is gonna be lit. We care about how fast the lens gets on that camera so I can frame up that shot. We care about the sensitivity to a dolly move, you know, the vocabulary of movement in a dolly on a track or whatever. And it was, um, I'm super grateful for their commitment. They all invested and um, I think it was a testament to their professionalism. You know, they saw this ripe opportunity to be like, hey man, I'm gonna give a shit. And they all blew us away with how much they cared about the film. And um, so that was, you know, that was awesome. Just how someone took a chance on you when sure. your mom drove you to the photographer's building. Right, right, yeah. To wait for three hours. Right, and right. And, and But but yeah. for some reason, he saw something in you. Mm. For for those, obviously, it was just planning to be, it was a short meeting, but it ended mm. up being three hours. Mm. What do you see in people that even though some may have a great resume, but you didn't just tell the work ethic isn't there, mm. or vice versa, maybe they don't. Mm. Now, I remember one time I interviewed for a job and I got it over somebody else and I asked the person years later, why did you choose me? And she said, the other people, they weren't hungry enough. Yeah, that's, that's a, um, I mean, that's a truthful response from her, I'm sure. Um, so the question is, what do I look for in people I hire? Or the question is, what do I look for when I want to work with someone again? Because those are sort of different, you know okay. what I mean? Well, then if you want to work with them again, does that boil down to work ethic or also chemistry? That's, that's a great question. Um, I think that um, the people that blow me away when they're hired uh, and... Um, that I can feel a, a sense of energy and commitment from right away. The thing that stands out about what they're doing is this thing we're making, this film we're making, right? It is forever for me, right? So it's forever in the two or three years of work leading up to making it. It's forever in that it has my artistic DNA on everything, and it's forever in that it has my name on it forever. Um, but it's the job they're doing. Maybe they maybe they've only done this kind of work for two years or three years or whatever. I've been doing it for fourteen. 
So the power of what I'm trying to accomplish is very high. Like, like it's very significant, the power. And the work standard is very high and the expectations are very high. I've been told that repeatedly by people who like me and people who don't, which is your expectations are so high. So what I look for is people who want to meet those or try to exceed them and people who care about the forever thing. You know, I'm not asking them to pretend to be me. That's egotistical and ridiculous. I'm asking them to care about as many of the moments that they're working on this as possible. And it's a tall order, um, but I set the tone for that. And many, many people uh, get switched onto that because they go, oh, this is, this is his film, so we're gonna, oof, you know? And that doesn't mean that two months later they're not gonna be working on something else and be texting while they're doing something else, right? So I look for that um, focus, like this sense of focus, this matters, and that they become a slightly myopic in their execution of what they're doing. They become obsessed with getting something right as well, because that's um, apple doesn't fall far from the tree kind of thing. So I look for a sort of a natural obsession of wanting to meet a really high standard of work and it has to be consistent. There was a couple of people on the set of this picture who got super tired and whose focus blurred uh, because of the stamina of being focused like that every day, all day long is very, very hard. And it's a turnoff for me when that happens. I'm not inhuman, people are human, I get it. Um, but when I see other people uh, sustain their focus out of a devotion to this project, um, it really turns me on and it makes me want to work with them again. And it makes me want to give them more responsibility depending on which um, department they're in. And um, yeah, I think that's what I look for. This like sense of, okay, for this many weeks, this is what I'm doing. Absolute, absolute focus and commitment knowing that it does end for them, right? It doesn't end for me for quite some time, but it does end for them. And there's a bunch of people on our team who have been doing this for so long that that, turn, that switch for them of working on a project like this for six to 12 weeks, depending on which department they're in, is an easy choice because they say, this matters, you know? And, um, and I'm very lucky to have so many of the people whose focus is super high want to come back in a heartbeat. Very lucky. How terrifying was it to use the equipment that you used on Echo in terms of just the cost of the lenses? Oh yeah. The, the Ari Alexa package? I mean. Yeah. Uh, not terrifying at all. Uh, I had used everything before. Um, I had done a, I had done a real significant camera test in the months before we sh uh, shot principal photography. Um, a few months before that, I had done a big project in New Zealand where we shot uh, Cook um, Anamorphics and Cook S4s. And before that, I had shot um, an Audi commercial um, and we shot Cook Anamorphics. They're extremely expensive lenses. Um, all the tools we use were top of the line. You know, we shot uh, Alexa Mini and uh, Cook Anamorphics and we used a Technocrane, we used an 18, a 25, and a 50. 
those are very, um, very expensive. Um, part of the privilege and benefit of doing commercial work is it can afford you some great toys and it can afford you the comfort of using, um, you know, a metaphor would be like the best, the best chef's knife possible. And uh, I had an opportunity to use all of the best equipment far in advance of the film. And um, so I never thought about it at all. What advice do you have for a filmmaker that is now sort of graduating to this new level mm -hmm. and they're terrified? Maybe they don't want to let people know. They don't totally know what they're doing. Sure. but. They terrified to... of the experience or terrified of the gear? Or of what? the gear. Oh, of the gear? Uh, be well insured, first of all. Like, I hear horror stories uh, from a specifically camera houses, both in Seattle and uh, Panavision. I know people at Panavision um, and uh, camera houses in New Zealand and Australia. I hear horror stories about, you know, a film student or an indie filmmaker coming in and begging and begging and begging to shoot with a lens or a couple lenses or whatnot, and they somehow let them out or they somehow work out a deal where they're very underinsured. And suddenly you're doing two things wrong. Suddenly you're cutting a professional corner, which you shouldn't cut because if you're going to be very real at doing this, there are things you have to do right. And one of them is to be very well insured. And if you can't afford it, you either need cheaper gear that can fall under that policy you do have, or you need to wait until you can afford the right policy because you're doing two things. One, you're putting yourself at risk. You're putting your relationship at risk with the camera house where um, they're trusting you and you're accepting that trust and you actually don't have uh, the ability to fulfill that liability if something goes wrong. And the second thing you're doing is you're fucking yourself and your focus. Because if you need to direct a movie or lens a shot and you're worried about putting it on the camera, you're wasting everyone's time, including your own. Um, I think there is, um, there's an escalation that happened for me technically. You know, I shot with, a, um, I think we shot with, a, um, a Rolly or a, or a Bolex on my first film. And then the second short I did, we shot on um, an RA-16S. And then the next film we shot on a 435 Extreme. And then the next project was um, a Alexa Classic, etc. And so there, it kind of goes back to like originally feeling like I don't deserve the right to shoot something yet, right? From my photography uh, apprentice days where I had to earn the right to shoot a shot of film. I had to earn the right to shoot a shot of film with a Hasselblad. I had to earn the right to shoot um, uh, a piece of four by five film, and which is extremely difficult to work with. Um, I think there's an excitement around the tools and the toys and stuff. And that's super, super natural. I mean, it's very natural, not super natural. It's very natural. And that's okay. But if you, if you can't handle it, then you shouldn't use it because your focus needs to be about making the project a success, 
not about um, what lens is on your camera because nobody cares, you know. Very few people, uh, very few people outside of the film industry know the difference between anamorphic and spherical. They don't. They don't. They can't tell you the difference. So they certainly couldn't tell you the difference between a Cook anamorphic and a Koa anamorphic. So you have to decide the right tool for the job. And when someone's researching uh, production insurance policies, yeah. is there like a website? You don't have to tell me like a specific carrier, but mm -hmm. where would they go to find various yeah, carriers? I think, and I think the, the, the best way to do it is you can do it outside in or inside out. So outside in would be you go online and you look up film production insurance and you make a list of companies and you reach out to them and you do research and you do hard work and you ask them lots of questions and you be real honest. Say, I got 25 grand. So I wanna shoot short with 25 grand or some people who are insane might say, I wanna shoot a feature for 25 grand. Um, and they'll say, what are you renting? First thing, they'll say, what are we covering? And you be honest with them. That's again, you don't cut corners with insurance. You just be honest with them. You say, I'm gonna shoot on an iPhone or you say, I'm gonna shoot it with a Panavision or whatever, then that's outside in. You do all the research yourself and then you catalog the pricing, the relationships, right? Uh, probably a more strategic approach is you get some FaceTime with an account executive at like Panavision Hollywood or Panavision Woodlawn or Auto or, um, you know, any of the camera houses in town and you say, um, I am producing my first project, which they've all heard a million times, ask for their time, be real limited. Hey, can I borrow five minutes of your time? Just have a couple quick questions. They'll probably be cool with it. Um, and then you say, I'd really like to know where the best producers get production insurance who are independents. Because studios are insured differently. So those people will say, oh, go to this place, this place, or this place. Right? They get the policies from all the same places. So for example, in Seattle, where we shot Echo, uh, there's really only two places to get film production insurance that's local. Those are people that insure huge commercials, TV series, and big movies. And then there's another one, which does small stuff. We went with the big one, and we took our camera list, so our camera and optics list from Kerner Camera, we took our gear list from PGL and we sent them to the insurance company because now they have an exact document, which is what we're insuring. So we're not fucking around. And they say, okay, it's this much, bang. And then they ask you questions like, are you doing pyrotechnics? Are you doing stunts? Are you doing underwater work? Are you doing um, anything that has a high vertical, et cetera? And that's all producer things that they'll get used to when they make more work, but I would, Short answer is I would call a camera house and just say, what are the top three? And they'll tell you. If they don't tell you, then they're being weird or you need to just call somebody who's nice. And then call them and get the hard truth of how much it really costs to make something, so. What about uh, production insurance for cast and crew, not just equipment? Sure. What, what's that fall under? Uh, well, Liability? The, or yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so basically you have an umbrella policy that covers uh, general liability. General liability is anyone who gets hurt or tries to sue you during um, a film's production or afterward. Uh, and then you have rental insurance. Uh, they call it inland marine, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have sort of specialty insurance, which is if you're doing big stunts or explosions or guns 
um, or um, anything that involves something where there's a risk to a person's life or if you're filming at a location that could be dangerous. You're filming at a volcano, you're filming on a train track, you know. Um, and uh, what I would do is just be super honest about everything. Don't, don't lie, don't steal a location, you know, don't, don't say, oh yeah, we're gonna film in all these places, but we're not gonna tell them about how we're gonna film in this aqueduct or in this like sewer system or whatever, because someone's gonna fall and end your career. And um, I got a good education on, uh, I got a good education on production insurance for two reasons. One, I paid for my own production insurance for my first film and it was 800 bucks. And 800 bucks when you're 22 and have no job, it's a lot of money. And they told me what it was for. They said it covers the, covers the camera, covers the film, you're doing a fight movie. It's only a three day shoot, but it's worth it, it totally was. And then doing a ton of ads after that, you start to really respect the comfort and safety of having a policy that protects you and everybody else involved. Um, and then from there, you can have particular agreements um, depending on a location or depending on what is involved in the filming. Um, you'll work with SAG on that. If it's for actors, you'll work with a union on that. If it's for your crew, uh, they may need to sign certain documents that limits the liability of their ability to go on a location because you say, I want twice as much protection. I want this policy and I want you to sign a liability waiver that says you're willing to do this. So it's really, uh, it's an interesting job as a producer because you're kind of a lawyer. So, um, but I would say research the hell out of it. It's not gonna be sexy. It's not sexy at all. It's boring. It's like buying insurance for your car, um, but uh, you will definitely, definitely regret it if you don't do it. So we bought a year long policy because I knew that we were gonna shoot and then pick up in the same calendar year. Hmm. And it saves people a lot of money to do that. But most people aren't that organized. <laughs> so they should get sort of a, um, they should get um, temporary production insurance, which is for a particular, that's why they make their money. Because if you say, hey, my shoot's gonna be five days, and you shoot five days and you don't get everything, you don't have insurance anymore. So you call them back and you pay again, da, da, da. that's how they make all their money. Oh. Um, but if you're insured as a production for a period of time, you can amortize it over over multiple shoots. So, um, but most people need to kind of get down the road pretty far before that is applicable. Yeah, that's interesting because mm. you can save more money. It sounds like doing it that way than having to. You get can just not have to re-up the policy, yeah. and also like you have a sense of like, oh, if anything goes wrong, and I got to reshoot this in a week or in three months, it opens up as a producer. It opens up your schedule. You're not trying to shoot before your insurance ends. Right? What has making Echo taught you about yourself and filmmaking? But yourself first, then filmmaking. I think it was the longest project I've ever done in my life. So, I mean, definitely. Um, I don't look at schooling as a project because it changes every quarter, so to speak. Um, it was this um, competition uh, that came out in me with myself. Um, and it was shattering a lot of naivete about 
how hard this would be. So you have to have some very challenging internal conversations with yourself when you get disheartened or when you feel alone in a process. Even if you have a great support network, it's very easy to just shut off. Um, it, there's, there are rises and falls of depression that were uncontrollable because you just get so exhausted with the process. Um, it taught me how to stop also inside of my myopic obsessive nature to finish or to get a moment perfect. It taught me to stop to enough is enough for a day. Like if we're cutting, we've been cutting for like 12 hours or something. It's like, stop, take a break. And I didn't know that about myself, you know, um, taught me a lot about health and taking care of yourself before the shoot, during and afterward, because you can, you can burn out before you start shooting. You can burn out pre-production and then you get into production and you're making the most important decisions about a performance or about coverage or about a particular moment that matters and you don't have the battery power to keep going. And that didn't really happen to me, but I could feel it a couple of times where I was like, I am so tired. And I wasn't prepared for how tired uh, my brain was going to be. And um, in the end of the day, uh, I think it taught me that um, no one gives you anything when you get to the top of the mountain. Like no one gives you a trophy or a, like a reward or a bottle of champagne in the Formula One race or whatnot. You're, you usually get to the top of that mountain in the dark alone and you have to figure out that that is what you wanted all along. You know, I think at the beginning it can be really romantic that when you finish, it's gonna you're gonna run through a ribbon in a marathon or something. Um, but it's a lot closer to what I've read about some mountaineering expeditions or some summiting of some peaks where a climber got somewhere in the dark alone and no one was there, and um, you have to figure out what got you there. You know, a lot of people on the way giving you support. A lot of people on the way. Um, giving you nourishment, a lot of people on the way helping, you know, you didn't get there alone, but sometimes you do land there alone, you finish alone. Um, and, and then I think I also learned that the affair is over. You know, I think that before you make a movie, there's an affair, there's like a romanticized idea of the work and of, um, um, every part of the process, you know, people think editing is easy. It's the opposite. You know, people think that doing sound mix is easy. It's the opposite. Um, people think they can kind of get away with doing a DI on like, um, you know, their computer. I don't agree with that. Um, and so what happened also for me was learning that the love affair with the idea of making a film was dead. And for a little while, it wasn't replaced with anything. It was just over. And that didn't mean I wanted to stop 
doing this, it meant that there was an internal feeling of emptiness and truth. And at the end of that, there was a real strong light at the tunnel and there was uh, like a, maybe a mature, maybe a stronger sensibility of what this really takes to do. And so then when I looked at my next project, I looked at what needed to be fixed. I looked at how the script needed to be polished and reworked. I looked at the production schedule. I immediately pushed production off by a certain amount. I needed more time to do this right. And so I suddenly came at the sophomore film, the next film, I suddenly came at that film with a sense of um, uh, realism, not optimism, and um, love and not lust, you know? And um, one of the things I also learned was that I have a very um, incredible wife, you know? And our relationship went from, you know, having lots of passion and having lots of lust and just being so in love with each other. And then when we got married, it, it became complicated and super interesting and better and richer and, and the fabric of everything became stronger and is very synonymous with my, ref, my metaphor about the affair of making a movie is over and it becomes better and more interesting. I don't think you can rush that because I went through a lot of pain to go from feeling the affair to being in love with this craft more than I ever have. But I had to go through all of the darkness first and not pretend like I had done it before. Um, I think some filmmakers, including myself years ago, maybe had a sense of feeling like I could do it and it wouldn't be hard. And uh, it's a different journey. So I learned how to tell myself the truth more. I don't remember the other question. <laughs> wow, I don't know if if it can top that. I'm just, what did um, Making Echo teach you about filmmaking? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, what did Echo, what did Making Echo teach me about filmmaking? Yeah. Um, it was a opportunity to see strengths and weaknesses under a microscope, right? These are the things I thought I was good at. These are the things I think I needed to work on. And when you take the duration of your material and when you take the audience's investment in the material, right? Okay, so they were gonna be invested in a 30 second ad or 60 second ad or what have you, right? Okay, so how much of that day is it taking? How much are they invested in watching this content? Okay, so that's what that is. And then over here, it's like, they're gonna buy a ticket to your movie and give you two hours of their life in a place that's not in their house. And that is a completely different invitation. So it taught me a lot about the reality of, okay, this muscle, this strength is solid. This is good. I can keep improving that. And I'm gonna challenge myself to do that on the next movie and here's how. Um, and then the, the opposite's true, which is I feel like this aspect of the story or the script needed work. And I never got the right amount of work. And fuck, it pisses me off. But it didn't. And it got finished and it's done. So it's like you can noodle with it forever and you never ever finish it. Or you finish it and you say, I gotta really be honest with myself about that's gotta get fixed next time. 
Um, it taught me a lot about, um, as, a, as a director, it taught me a lot about people. Uh, it taught me a lot about um, expectations and morale. Um, I was reminded just before, this saved my ass, by the way. I was reminded just before we started filming, like a week before, uh, my dad says, you're the captain of the ship. And I was like, of course, you know, like, thank you. And he goes, I didn't mean it like that. I meant it like you are the captain of the ship. You are the captain of the ship. If things go right, you're the captain of the ship. If things go wrong, you're the captain of the ship. And after four or five days, um, it became super clear that I needed to adapt my leadership style to the team, not because they needed me to or asked me to, but because I was paying attention to being the captain of the ship. And whether that was to um, make sure to uh, every day in the morning, say good morning to every person on the team. And at the end of the day, tell every person on the team, great day, which I did do. And I had already really been doing that, but it wasn't hyper diligent. It wasn't as focused around, you know what, they're working so hard every day and we're only 20% in or 15% in or whatever it was. And okay, great. So that I needed, I needed to be a better leader. And, um, and then it also uh, taught me a lot about um, editorial. I learned that I'm used to assembling and cutting while I'm going on ads. And we didn't have that strategy on this film and we are changing it on the next film. So for example, we shoot, uh, you know, we shoot material. I look at some dailies, but I don't make editorial decisions. The editor's not on set working. And then when we're done and we're in the can, I look at everything for a period of four weeks or whatever. And then we start assembling. I learned that that process was super inefficient. And the result of that process was that, or the reason why it happened was because we were working so fast and so hard every day, there wasn't time to review material in earnest. And so that's gonna change on the next film. On the next film, we're gonna cut concurrently with the production. Um, I read a lot about how that's done. I talked to a bunch of editors in Hollywood about how they do it. I followed the process uh, or, or you know, really drilled in on the process the way they cut Munich, uh, Spielberg's film. Uh, they, they cut it concurrently and they were able to have a, a strong assembly of the cut within, I believe, a few weeks after production. And it also creates an efficiency in any pickups, and et cetera. So probably one of the biggest lessons I learned was about um, editorial. And the last thing I really, really learned about was my passion for meticulous cinematography and very specific color grade work in the DI is equal to my level of passion for sound design in the mix. You know, I had had a lot of experience in a DI for commercials, but the mix on commercials is really quick. They do it in a day, it's done, you're not even usually there. And on a film, the mix along with the Foley and design and dialogue cleanup and looping and stuff, you know, this takes months and months to do. And I fell in love with um, the sound design process, I fell in love with uh, the final mix, making this weighted ratio decisions on the audience's experience 
from a sound perspective. And that was, I've never had that experience before. So that was really exciting. So um, yeah, I'm sure my answer to this question could be like two hours long. <laughs> let's say we brought you in to address a room of, let's say 20 students, I don't yeah. know. And they're about to make uh, their first feature. Yeah. They've already made a few shorts. Sure. What are you telling them? What's your advice to them? Um, have they written their scripts? Let's say half of them have. Half of them have. Um, okay, I'll answer half of your question first. Okay, that and then good. I'll and then I'll ask you another question. Okay. Um, for the half that haven't written them yet, I would say um, uh, write what you can shoot, and shoot what you can cut, and cut what you can finish, because. Uh, from my experience, I started writing ideas and then scripts that were, um, weren't in the realm of possibility of making or producing. So I didn't waste time. My approach was to write material that I wanted to see and that I wanted to make. And that's, um, that's great if you're writing scripts on spec, but not if you're going to write a script to make a film. You write what you can shoot. And so if you can shoot it, then you better be able to cut it. So don't, uh, don't try to shoot an action movie if you can't cut an action movie, because the last part will be true, which is you won't finish it. Um, the only reason I have a career is because I finished a film first, and then I became more and more and more ambitious finishing things along the way. And I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and he said 70% of all features are not finished. And so I think it's very hard when you tell a film student or a fan of film that, hey man, you know, your Kung Fu action movie is not gonna happen right now. You should do uh, a bank heist movie that ends in a diner and don't show the heist or something like that. So it's a matter of shoot or write what you can shoot and then finish it and make sure it's done. And then it will be a tool, it will be a, it will be a calling card for you to move forward. Um, but nobody cares about your career if you can't finish anything. Second question, or the second half of the group, I would say if their scripts are done, uh, are they financed? Do they have capital? Do they have investors? Is the process they're in pre-production or is the process they're in financing? Okay, let's suppose most of them will be either getting money from family and friends, sure. putting it on a credit card, or they're going to, some will try their attempt at crowdfunding. It doesn't mean they, they will be sure. successful. Yeah, um, if they're at a stage where they're going to um, get film financing, um, I would sit down and have a conversation with yourself or with your team, depending on how, you, how you're working. If you're working with a team of producers and you guys are all a unit, well then talk about it together. If you're not, if you're just some rogue dude or a gal and you're just gonna do this shit like Robert Rodriguez, uh, then just have this conversation with yourself. And that is, what are you gonna do with the film? It has to have a purpose. It has to have an audience. So you have to think, okay, I'm gonna make this film 
and I'm going to submit it to Sundance or I'm going to make this film and I'm going to submit it to a horror film festival or I'm going to make this film and I'm going to use it to go get an advertising commercial director job. It has to have a purpose because before you can figure out how much an investment in this project is worth, it has to have a value and the value has to be its goal, right? So its goal is to, I want it to festival and who knows what will happen. Okay, great. Well, when you talk to people about helping you, that's your vision. Your vision is, an, I'm going to tell you about two people in a canoe in this horror movie. It's like, no, no, they want to hear about what you're going to do with it when it's done. They don't care about, they don't really care about how you're going to make it. They really don't because they're not you. Um, also, if you know what you're going to do with it, then you can justify something like putting it on your credit card, which I would not advise to anyone. I know someone who did that years ago. She went into $60,000 of debt, credit card wise. The movie went nowhere. She was paying that off for 10 years. Oh. And she didn't have a goal with the film, which is one of her challenges. And also it just sort of, it, it became a pet project, a vanity project, instead of a project she could really stand behind. If you're using someone else's money, there's also a sense of duty to finish. So if you are asking for family and friends and stuff like that to help you, if they do give you the money, there's a sense of debt, which is good to them. Um, crowdfunding, I don't know anything about that. Um, I don't know. I have no idea how that really works. My um, guess is the only way you get crowdfunding is if you have a flash teaser or a flash trailer or something that can tell a stranger that their money should be in your pocket. Um, I know people have done it before. I've seen some teasers for it. You know, success is probably all over the map um, about it. But um, but yeah, I would I would definitely say the first thing is to figure out what they're going to do with the film so that it legitimizes the investment and doesn't become a vanity project. Um, and then the last thing I would say to uh, a group full of filmmakers who's about to start is communication is, it can be really hard if it's your art. It can be really hard if it's your work. But if you're working with the right people, they're all going to make your vision a reality. Don't be a fucking diva. We've all met those people. We've all met the people who either went to USC film school or they went to a filmmaking class on a weekend and they are a diva. No one wants to work for you if you're a diva. Zero people want to work for you. And even less people want to work for you day two. So you have to figure out, hey, I'm in pre-production. Hey, I got some money. Hey, I got really good insurance. Uh, and I have really good people, really good people. And those are the people that work super duper hard. I know people who are very successful who still work on no money projects all the time if they like the people. Um, and uh, chances are that everyone I'm talking to is in that boat. So... I would spend time getting to know the people who are on your crew really well, you know? I wouldn't put director on your fucking chair. People put director on their chair and it's like, that's so stupid. Um, years ago, years ago, a woman I was dating, her mother bought me a director's chair and she was a very wealthy person and she had it embroidered. It said director 
and I have my name on it and I put it in storage and now it's gone. I never ever took it on a set ever because one, if you're a good director, you're not sitting in that chair ever. And two, nobody cares. Uh, the last thing I would tell people who want to have a long future in the business is find out what the people at your camera house and your grip and electric house and your truck rental house and maybe the people who do film permits, find out what they like to drink and buy it. Um, I don't know how many bottles of scotch or champagne or cubes of beer I've bought for people who never forgot that, hey, this is the guy who's always grateful for my help, right? And um, that's what matters, you know, especially if you're underfunded, is that you really care about all the people around you and all the people that um, get to decide if you get to make your film. So, yeah. And the one last curveball would be sure. somebody who wants to make a feature, they don't have any plans to do anything with it, they just want the experience. <sighs> so, and it's not really a vanity project in that they're not totally casting themselves, they just wanna know what it's right. like from start to finish to make a film. And what's the question exactly? question Sorry. is what, what are their set of parameters? How are they doing it differently? Mm. Or is it all the same? It doesn't really matter. I think that um, I have met uh, no one in my life who's wealthy enough to make a movie by themselves for fun and have no goal. Uh, the only person I can think of in history is like Howard Hughes. And um, so I, I, I don't think I would be able to give any advice to a person who had a trust fund and thought it would be fun to make a film because even if they have a lot of money and time and they're creative and even if they're super nice, they're still gonna be engaging with a lot of other people on their crew, they're gonna be renting things in order to make this experience possible. And all of the um, all of the parameters around respect and all the parameters around gratitude apply to them anyway. Um, the only caution I would give someone who's doing it for fun is, is probably easy for you to waste other people's time. And I learned, I think it was the first couple of weeks I was in LA. I learned how long it took to get from one place to another, right? And I was late to a couple of meetings. I wasted a couple of people's time. And they made it super clear to never do that again. So I hope that this rich, fictional, phantom person who's making a movie for fun pays people a lot of money and doesn't waste their time. Yeah. <laughs>